Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. Women wrapped up in blankets and they're looking for food. It's the saddest thing I've ever witnessed. Trust is a human emotion. And for some reason, we've embedded trust in social media. I thought about you, but I did get it because you've given us so much airtime. Thank you so much. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818-969696. Extra WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. And a very, very good morning to you. It's Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. Just in case you're like me and you've been getting mixed up with the times and days and the last number of days. Again, it's the 3rd of January. It's Tuesday. It's 2023. And as I look out the studio window here down onto Patrick Street and Merchants Quay, it's pretty miserable outside. If you're back in work, well, the very, very best of luck to you. If you've got another few days off and you're lying in your laba, stay there because it's a, a pretty damp and miserable day. Good morning. This is Paul Byrne. I'm here till 12 o'clock filling in for PJ. He's still at home finishing off what's left of the budgie. I hope your Christmas went well. I know for some it can be quite a difficult time. Uh, some people get down, they get lonely. But look, we're out the other side of it and let's try and think in a positive manner from here on. Over the last number of days, Gardaí detectives here in Cork and paramedics have been extremely busy. There has been so many incidents and unfortunately so many people have lost their lives in uh, terrible, terrible circumstances. Uh, Ralph Regal is Southern correspondent with the Irish Independent. Good morning, Ralph. Good morning, Paul. Ralph, I want to start, first of all, if I can, with um, an incident on Liberty Street on uh, New Year's Day. Now, what started out as a call to the Gardaí as a domestic issue soon had paramedics, Gardaí and detectives at a flat on Liberty Street. Within minutes, it became a crime scene. Someone was arrested and within hours, there was a murder investigation underway. Ralph, a 28-year-old Brazilian woman, Bruno Fasecco, lost her life in terrible circumstances. Again, there is somebody before the courts in relation to this, so I do have to be careful, as you as you well know. What happened on Liberty Street, from what we know? Yeah, well, what I can say, um, Paul, after that special sitting of Cork District Court yesterday evening, was that at about 6.30am on New Year's Day, Guardian paramedics were called to a property on Liberty Street, um, no, 
people with the city will be familiar with it or from the city will be familiar with it. But for those who aren't, it's it's just round the back corner of the, the courthouse, about maybe 100 metres from the Bridewell Garda station and almost directly across the road from a church. Um, the body of a young woman was found in an upstairs flat um, despite desperate attempts to revive her. She was pronounced dead at the scene. Now, the body was removed around lunchtime to Cork University Hospital and to the morgue where a full post-mortem examination was conducted by the assistant state pathologist Dr Margaret Bolster. Now that the results of that post-mortem are not being um, released by Gardaí for operational reasons but what I can say is that um, Miss Fonseca met a violent death and it is understood that she was strangled. Now a man was arrested at the scene, a 29 year old man, and he was taken to the Bridewell Garda station. He was detained under section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act which basically gives Gardaí about 24 hours to question um, the, the, the individual detained and yesterday evening before a special sitting of a uh, Cork District Court, before Judge John King, um, Miller. Uh, Pacheco, a 29-year-old Brazilian national, was charged with the murder of his former partner uh, Bruna Fonseca, contrary to common law. Now, because it was a murder charge, bail cannot be dealt with by the district court. So, uh, Mr. Pacheco was remanded in custody and he will appear again before Cork District Court by video link on Monday next. What do we know about 28-year-old Bruna? I know she moved here uh, some time ago to Cork to, 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 for, I suppose in one sense, to try and better her life as it were it, it is Paul and that, that's exactly it I mean it's one of these stories that I mean there are so many different layers to this tragedy I mean here was a young she was a university graduate very intelligent young woman uh, she was a beautiful girl I mean anyone who has seen the images in the newspapers over the last couple of days will have been struck by just what a, a striking young woman she was she had moved to Ireland uh, for a better life I think the plan was that she would save money here and move back to her native Brazil and um, she had been here for only a short period of time. Since September, I think it was into September. September, was, yeah. that's right. Correct, Paul. Yeah, about, about August or September, she came to Ireland and she got a job as a cleaner. She was working with Bidvest Noonan and one of her duties was actually working, doing cleaning duties in the Mercy University Hospital. And again, another layer of tragedy. Her body was found only about 100 metres from where she used to work. And I think it's a testimony to the type of young woman she was, that even though she was only in Ireland for a short period of time, there were very, very moving tributes paid to her, both by by the Mercy University Hospital and by Bidvest Noonan, who said that she was a very valued colleague. She was very diligent in her work and that they were deeply saddened and shocked by the, by the, by the manner of her death. Ralph, I know in court yesterday there were some relatives of Bruno in court. And what can you tell us now about the, the, her, her body? Will that be repatriated with her family, to her family? Again, we're waiting to see what's going to happen with that, Paul. I mean, usually what happens is the state will will retain um, the the remains for a number of days after a court charge. But then once all the the, the formalities and regulatory issues are cleared, uh, the remains will be given to the, the family. At this stage, we don't know whether there will be a funeral service here in Ireland or whether the body will be repatriated to Brazil for a funeral service there. But I think that'll be clarified probably within the next 24 hours. All right. I want to talk then uh, a day earlier, New Year's Eve, a housing estate in Mahan and Black Rock. Um, people woke up around half past eight in the morning and to find Garthi had sealed off an area. Uh, a 43-year-old man, originally from the north side, found unconscious. 
That's right, Paul. I mean, it just has been an, an absolutely incredible Christmas and New Year's in terms of tragedies here in Cork. I mean, you know things are bad when a colleague of mine who happens to be one of the crime correspondents in Dublin, and he was texting me to say, what is going on in Cork? Because, of course, you had um, an alleged hit and run. You had a very serious stabbing incident in Carrigaline, and you had the discovery of this middle-aged man's body in Mahan. Now, as you said, the scene was sealed off. Um, the the, the guardie conducted a full technical examination of the scene. The remains were taken to the Cork morgue for um, a post-mortem examination. And on the basis of that, uh, no criminal investigation is ongoing. So the death is no longer being treated as suspicious. And I, I suppose if, if hopefully that is some consolation to the family of the late Keith Butler from Guidor Avenue in Mayfield, because Keith was uh, a son, he was a father to uh, yeah. a number of children, and uh, our sympathies go out to to his family. You mentioned Carrigaline. I know two teenagers are now before the court in relation to uh, an assault on a man, a 29-year-old, Matt O'Neill, who is still in a critical condition at Cork University Hospital. Um, this was a pretty nasty alleged assault, uh, Ralph, that has left this 29-year-old man fighting for his life, really, in hospital. It, it was, Paul, a very, very serious incident. It occurred, of course, around 6 o'clock on December the 28th uh, when Gardy were called to the Glenwood estate. And when they arrived on the roadway, they found the 29-year-old man with a very, very serious head injury and a profound loss of blood. Now, he received emergency medical treatment at the scene, and then he was transferred by ambulance to Cork University Hospital, where he went on, where he underwent emergency surgery. Now, he has been in a critical but stable condition um, since um, surgery there on the evening of the 28th, and Gardy immediately sealed off the scene. They began door-to-door inquiries and as a result of that as you've said two teenagers uh, were later arrested now they both appeared separately before Cork District Court one is aged 18 the other is aged 19 and they've both been charged with assault in connection with the circumstances in which this 29 year old man uh, received that head injury and both of these teenagers I understand presented themselves at Toker Guard the station for for questioning Correct. That's right. And they and both appeared separately. They were, it wasn't a single court charge. There were two separate court charges in respect of the 18 year old and the 19 year old. Again, they they've both been remanded on bail with quite strict bail conditions. So again, that's going to be an ongoing matter for the Guardian. Magazine Road on New Year's Day, a man, uh, again, almost bled to death. I mean, this is absolutely frightening. Uh, what do we know? This is a 59-year-old Ukrainian man who lost a, a massive amount of blood uh, following a, a, a slashing. Yeah, very much so, Paul. It was a story that was actually broken by a colleague of ours, Barry Roach of the Irish Times, and it, it's, it could quite easily have resulted in another um, fatality, given the serious nature of the injuries that were inflicted. Apparently, there were a group of people socialising together, and this Ukrainian man apparently was struck in the head with a bottle. And again, he had a profound loss of blood. The Guardian paramedics were alerted. They went to a property on the magazine road, and this man was discovered essentially trying to staunch the blood flow um, with a towel. I think Guardian paramedics immediately realised the serious nature of the situation. He was rushed to Cork University Hospital and went, underwent immediate emergency surgery and uh, but uh, received apparently multiple transfusions of blood as well. Such was the nature of the injury. Now he's currently in a serious but stable condition but I think officers were stressing that this really was as close as you can possibly go um, to, to a fatal to incident. Yeah, Ralph, yeah. Uh, 
Leaving what has happened over the last number of days aside just for a moment, and we're talking about a man almost bleeding to death, but so many people have been attacked on our streets, morning, noon and night. What's gone wrong? Where is society breaking down? I think it's it, it, there's some very hard questions that we have to ask ourselves, Paul. I think you only have to look at the homicide rate for last year. Now, the homicide rate last year was double what the homicide rate was in 2021. And I know some people will say, well, look, there was lockdown and there was COVID and people weren't out and, you know, pubs and clubs and all those things were shut. But I think it goes beyond that. I mean, some people have argued that there's a kind of a, when people are coming out of the, the, the kind of pandemic lockdown, that there's almost an element of exuberation and that people are celebrating and socialising and maybe drinking far more than they, they would ordinarily have done. But attacks, but I think attacks for, Ralph, aren't they becoming more yeah. and more violent? Let's, let's go back, we'll say, to the 70s and 80s for argument's sake, right? And if there was an argument, fellas might come out and sort it out with a few piss, fiss, fists and throw a few punches. But it seems to be the case now where people are picking up bottles, they're carrying knives, they're, there's fellas jumping and stamping on heads. I mean, that's what's happening. That's the reality of it. It's, it's, it's frightening out there. It's dangerous for people to be in and out, um, just going out in general, isn't it? Oh, oh, absolutely, Paul. I mean, it is certainly, I mean, I'm 55 and I would consider myself a fairly balanced person. I mean, I've grown up, I've, I love Cork City. I, I still consider Cork to be a safe city. The problem is I don't think it's as safe a city as it once was. And you very much hit the nail on the head there that back in our era, you know, it was a punch to the head or whatever. But it's just the fact, it's the fact that people are using weapons, bottles, knives. When someone falls to the ground, they're not left alone. That's when the real damage starts, that people start putting, kicking them in the head and almost acting as if to inflict the maximum damage on people. Now, why that is, I don't know. Is it, I mean, is, it, a, is it a case of drink and sometimes coupled with drugs? I, I would suspect that that's a large element of it, Paul, <clears throat> and I would suspect that there's also probably an element of people looking at video games and t- watching television and thinking that, you know, you can do these things to people and they'll bounce straight back up again. And the reality is they don't. If you, you know, kick someone in the head on the ground, it's flicking a coin up in the air. Do they live? Do they die? Because that's the serious nature of the injury that you could possibly inflict. And, you know, you only have to go to the courts. I mean, I would certainly have noticed that, say, covering a court, going into a court sitting 20, 25 years ago, the number of serious assaults that are coming up from anecdotally, I would have thought, are significantly higher than they would have been 20, 25 years ago. And I think, look, it's a question for everybody. It's a question for parents. It's a question for relatives. It's a question for individuals about behaviour, about, you know, how, how do we act when we are in groups. But it's, it's come to the stage as well, Ralph, sorry for cutting you off, it's come to the stage where people just have no respect for, some people have no respect for others and they have no respect for life. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, like, I, I, I know a person that was out having a couple of quiet drinks in, uh, in Douglas and for no reason a person was walking by and, and punched him in the face. And it's that, I mean... Some some of these assaults, there there isn't any provocation. They're just pure random acts of violence. And I think that's something as a society we have to get a handle on, whether it's through education, whether it's through a much tougher policy in the courts, whether it's through more guardie, a much higher and vi- more visible guard presence. But Ralph, honestly, I know we, we hear of people calling for yellow jackets and uh, boots on the street. Do you think if 
10 or 12 guards are walking up and down Patrick Street and Oliver Plunkett Street tonight or tomorrow night if that is that going to deter some fella from picking up a bottle and lashing out at someone I mean really and truly if, if it's in someone's nature to attack another will, will yeah. the yellow jackets put them off no, it's one element of it, Paul. I mean, I think it, 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 it's it's unfair to to lob all of this on the guardy. Oh, I'm not. I mean, I'm guardie, not. I'm not. I mean, I know. Yeah. I know they're 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 stretched big time. But I don't know. Will uh, all these guards on the streets make a massive difference? No, I think I, I think it's one element of it, Paul. And you're absolutely correct. I mean, if we suddenly put thousands of, of you know, extra guardy patrolling the towns of our villages, streets and to- or towns and cities, is it going to stop all assaults? No, it's not. Because some of these assaults are actually occurring in people's own homes. They're occurring in places where the guardy are not going to be patrolling. So I think extra guardy is one element of it. Maybe a, a revised tougher policy within the courts is one element of it. But a lot of it goes back to education and personal behaviour, and very much, I think, our view as a society on what is acceptable in terms of consumption of alcohol and drugs. Uh Unfortunately, as long as you have people that are really drinking to excess, using drugs to excess, you're going to end up with incidents like this. I remember filming in Cork Prison uh, many, many years ago and interviewing prisoners. And there was a, 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 I don't know if it's still in existence or not, there was an an item called, uh, or a project called an encounter scheme where they would bring students from schools around the city to the prison, meet with the prisoners, and these prisoners really, you know, laid it out straight out. Look, I'm here because I did A, B and C. And... I suppose if there was 25 to 30 students, if you can only save one fella from going off the tracks, it's a worthwhile project. And I also see you and I were in the courts every day of the week, whatever. Bring, mm. would you, would you agree with bringing students into the school or students into the courthouse, uh, to see what happens, to see people being led away? I mean, again, you mentioned education a while ago. Okay. Geography and history. Okay, something else. But what about teaching people, you know, the facts of life? This is what happens when you hit somebody, you're going down for 12 months or whatever the case may be. Absolutely, Paul. A hundred percent. I think those programs are worth their weight in gold, as are the programs that are that are that are performed on a purely voluntary basis by such groups as Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, where people go into schools and talk about their experiences of alcohol and drugs. And as you say, if you can just persuade one person to say, this may not be a good idea, I'd better stay away from this, because it's all fun and laughs until something happens. And then and how many times, you know, we've been sat beside each other in district courts and you have young fellas coming in, they're very well dressed, they're from very good families, the tears are rolling down their faces, they didn't mean to do it, and you have some guy whose life has been altered by a bottle, by a knife, by a punch or whatever, and they're all very, very sorry, but it's too late at that point. And you can really go back and the common denominator in so many of these awful cases is someone who took drugs, who drank to excess and did something that ordinarily would have been totally out of character. So is it time genuinely for the Minister for Justice and the Minister for Education to sit up, take note and let's look at trying to introduce schemes and projects in schools where they're honestly told this is what life is, this is what it's all about. Oh, absolutely, Paul. I think that's one element of a whole package of measures that we really have to look at long and hard. Because I think if you take the last 10 days 
within Irish society. I mean, those type of things just aren't acceptable. I mean, we really have to try and say we don't want to live in a world where those kind of things are commonplace. And unfortunately, if you don't take action now, those kind of incidents are just going to keep happening, increasing in number. And from being one of the countries in Europe that we all proudly regard as safe and a great place to live, that's suddenly going to start to get eroded. Are politicians living in the real world? You know, they often say people are they're living in the ivory towers. Do they know what's happening on our doorsteps, Ralph? Do they, are they in touch with reality, really? I think they are, Paul, but I think being in touch with reality and having the momentum and the willingness to go out and grasp the nettle in terms of doing things. And I think politicians also have to bring society with them. And I think, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, it, a lot of this does boil down to individual responsibility. If you go out and you drink off your head, if you take drugs and something happens, it's not society's fault. It's not the guard's fault. It's not the bouncer's fault. It's your fault because you put yourself in a position where, you know, you're not you, you can't control your actions because you're acting far beyond what you normally would do. And I think the onus is on everyone. It's on the politicians. It's on ourselves. It's on parents. It's on the guardie. It's on everyone to try and make it a better, safer society. So that, I mean, I have kids. And when they go out at night, you do say a prayer that they're safe, that nothing happens, that they stay in groups. And it's a conversation that we feel we have to have with our kids. But it's sad that we have to do that legislation, the laws in the courts. I mean, judges are often criticised for what some people describe as a lenient sentence, but it's really the legislators are responsible for that. So do we need to impose and do we need to bring in tougher laws? I mean, if a fella is hit with a bottle for argument's sake, okay, somebody might get six months. Should it be a mandatory five years? I mean, if you attack a guard, should should it be 10 years? Is it time that this country gets tough on the offenders? Absolutely. In some cases, I would 100% agree with that, Paul. I mean, I, I'm of per, my own personal view is that anyone who attacks or assaults any member of the emergency services, whether it be a paramedic, a fireman or a guard, should be looking at a mandatory sentence because that's the only way. But why isn't, ha- why isn't it happening, Ralph? Because you mentioned the word will a while ago. Is the political <clears throat> will there to do it? I don't think so. Well, I, I have to say, Paul, I mean, from my own tuppence worth, I think if you brought regulations in like that, it would have overwhelming support within society. Because when anything bad happens to all of us, the firemen, the ambulance drivers, the guardy, they're your best friends. I understand that, but Ralph, we're living in a country where it's like a, it takes a, <clears throat> a problem to put the situation right. Typical yeah. Irish solution to an Irish problem, wait for something to happen and then we'll change the yeah. law. Look, it took, yeah, unfortunately, the death of Veronica Guerin to change some laws. But why not yeah. do it now? We've been talking about attacks on the emergency services. These are people, Ralph, who go out there morning, noon and night and they're putting their life on the line. They leave their wives, their children, they say goodnight, goodbye, we'll see you later <laughs> on. There is a chance that these people will come under attack but if if the law and the legislation isn't there i mean these people why are in the name of god are they doing it when they're being yeah. kicked and spat in and windows smashed night yeah. after night and putting their lives under risk the, the the law is not there the legislation is not tough enough sure it's not no well i personally paul in terms of attacks in the emergency services like i would 100 percent be in favor of mandatory sentencing and much tougher well we've been talking about it ralph for years why isn't that happening what the, the, is well, the lack here, of political here, will I think, Paul, here's a simple thing. Like At the end of the day, politicians are all answerable to the people. So if people listening to this show feel very strongly about it, send an email, make a phone call, 
write a letter to your local TD and say, why isn't this happening? You represent me. I want this to be brought up in the Dáil or the Shannon, and I want something done about it. So at the end of the day, if there's enough of a momentum, you'll see politicians start to act. I don't, Ralph, like, come the next general election, I, I often say, you know, they're in the job for five years and they're facing a P45 if they haven't been doing their job properly. But why is it that they're voted in year after year or every term after term and they're still, some will say, they're still not doing their job? Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing I would say, Paul, is that I was actually only chatting to a guy about this the other day. Like, I remember the 1997 election and when the Fianna Fáil government came in, for the first couple of years afterwards, you had this fabulous policy of zero tolerance. It was John O'Donoghue, wasn't and, it? Yeah, and if you look back, I would argue that it was actually in many ways a safer society back then, and we were pushing for zero tolerance where zero tolerance doesn't seem to be any type of a policy that we're adhering to at the moment. And I would say that in many ways, in terms of addiction, in terms of random unprovoked violence, in terms of attacks on the emergency services, you're looking at a far more dangerous element within society that needs to be tackled. So unless people, everyone has a voice, and if you're willing to use it, and if politicians listen to it and hear it, you will suddenly see that these type of things are very much in all of the manifestos come the next general election. Yeah, we have a voice, they have ears, but maybe their hearing aids are switched off because they're okay, they'll come up with a manifesto, but they don't implement them. It's great and black and white and I promise you this and we promise you that and we'll do this and we'll do that. Well, Ralph, honestly, people are sick and tired of it. They are, Paul, but I think if if the voices are loud enough and persistent enough, Ralph, things people are change. shouting from the rooftops for years and years and people are still yeah, Paul, being affected. I agree, but I think you have to look at the positive. I mean, it's a new year and I think you have to look at the things that we've done very well in society. For instance, the smoking ban within, within pubs. I mean, I remember when that was brought in and everybody said, oh, it's not going to work and it's going to be this and that and the other. And to be honest with you, it, it Ireland led the way in terms of, of global society and the attitude towards health and what was acceptable. And why why can't we lead the way in terms of a, a view and an attitude and a legislative approach to the protection of the emergency services who, after all, what are they doing? They're actually out there to protect us all and to help us all. When God help us, we come across our most vulnerable and most uh, challenging moments. So, like, do they not deserve to be protected? All right, Ralph, hold the line a second and just have a listen to this. The raid of Castle Martyrhorn on the attack with Mike Kelly. There may one of their main men, he flicks it in around the goal mode area. We watch here. Can John O'Keefe, the uh, man from Dripsy, get it over? He gets it all a part of the way. And Castle Martyr can win this one back. Lovely skill initially by Owen Martin. Martin tried to get in there. My God, this Sinniscara team at this moment in time are well up for this one. And the man that has it clears it down the field. And that's none other than Colm Casey at 33 years of age from Berings but it's intercepted and it's won back by Barry Lawton Ralph that's the unmistakable voice there of Paddy Palmer uh, well known um, C103 FM GA commentator uh, Paddy was involved in a terrible accident uh, just some time ago uh, that's right, Paul. We referenced it there in our kind of summary of, of some of the awful things that had happened in Cork over the, the Christmas and New Year's. And that incident actually happened on December the 29th, just outside Inishannon. And uh, the vehicle that, that Paddy was in was involved in a collision with another vehicle. That vehicle left the scene. Now, Paddy was rushed to Cork University Hospital and he went under underwent emergency surgery. 
and he remains in a critical condition. And I know that all the, the thoughts and prayers of everybody in Cork, not just those who, who you know, so adore his um, promotion and association with Gaelic Games here, they're with him for a good recovery. Now, a man he, has he's, appeared, he's a unique oh, commentator, isn't he? Absolutely. And he brings, you know, the one thing you cannot um, fake is passion and you every match report every commentary the passion for the game the knowledge of the game comes across in fact i learned over the last couple of days i learned a lot of things about potty that i didn't know i didn't know that he was from temple no in County Kerry, and I didn't know that he was actually the uncle of Claudine Keane, who, of course, is the wife of of Robbie Keane, the retired um, Irish footballer. And there was some very, very moving tributes paid to Paddy and a lot of people online wishing him a safe and and speedy recovery from his injuries. Um, So there's a lot of goodwill out there towards Paddy. And really, I mean, for an awful lot of people, their weekends are very much associated with Paddy because of the fabulous coverage that he gives on local radio to Gaelic Games. Thank you very much indeed, Ralph, and uh, all the best for 2023. And all of uh, Paddy's colleagues here at 96 and C103 FM wish him well. Our thoughts are with him and his family at this time. And this is uh, Paul burn in until midday. Now in the last couple of uh, minutes we have received an email and uh, I think it's fairly topical because uh, lots of people feeling under the weather over Christmas. It says Paul, we are a family of 19 and we met on Christmas Day. Two days later, 16 of us were sick in bed. It wasn't COVID, it was a horrible respiratory stroke chest infection that ripped through the house. The kids had high temperatures, coughs and red and raw sore throats, while the adults had full-blown chest infections. Now Almost everyone I've spoken to this Christmas says this uh, texter, our emailer, is sick. Why is this, says Anne. I had COVID a few weeks ago and this recent illness was 10 times worse. Also, I've been talking to people who are still sick three or four weeks after contracting this respiratory type illness. It's wiping people out. Can you find out what it is? Because half of Cork seem to be sick. And uh, that's a very, very valid point because lots and lots of people I've spoken to myself... uh, uh, leading up to Christmas and uh, only in the last 24 hours have been, you know, thrown on the couch and uh, feeling, feeling terrible. And the team here in the last couple of moments have been on to uh, the Blackpool Bridge surgery and former Lord Mayor of Cork, Dr. John Sheehan, is the man out there holding the fort. Dr. John, good morning. Morning, Paul. John, what's wrong? Why are people feeling basically under the weather and very much so? They're uh, on their last legs, as it were. Yeah, no, you're, you're dead right, and, and, and the caller who emailed in was very much correct. Um, unfortunately, we have, I suppose, three things happening, Paul. Every, this time of year, the number of, of infections tends to go up um, due to the, 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 the climate, Christmas mixing, and, and, and many other reasons, and, and flu tends to be seasonal like this. But this year, I suppose, is a little bit different in that we have three things. We have COVID, which is... Uh, you know, going along, not as severe as it was, thanks to the vaccination program, but certainly, you know, a number of people are getting that. We have respiratory syncytiovirus, which tends to affect children and, and, and older people, and then we have flu and flu-like illnesses. So we have a combination of all three. And I suppose this is the first year which really we haven't had many restrictions compared to the last number of years. So the amount of mixing that is going on this year is much greater than the past two years and that's you know which is great to see everything but that's leading to um, the, you know it, it, it's just spreading much much easier and as you said I was on South Africa the other night and it was one of the busiest nights we've ever had and 80% of it was um, respiratory uh, complaints 
are you one of the people so in South Dock that people can't seem to get through to? <laughs> it, it is, and it, it, it's been a nightmare for them to get through. Um, in fairness to the to the to, to, to people taking the calls, it's just been absolutely flooded. They put extra doctors on, but even allowing for the it's up something like sixteen, eighteen percent compared to uh, compared to last year. Um, but so you're fact- saying there's there's three factors. So, but I mean, uh, um, how dangerous is it really at the moment? Because people are thrown down for the last number of weeks. I mean, uh, are, are lives at stake here because of what's happening? Well, for the vast majority of people, um, it'll be like, like, like your caller said. Um, they'll be sick, they'll be a bit miserable, they'll have sore throat, they'll have flu-like symptoms, but they'll be fine. You know, they'll rest up, they'll take paracetamol, they'll relax, they'll fluids and all of that, and, and, and they'll be fine. But the difficulty is, of course, if you have, you know, an underlying illness, if you have emphysema, if you have any, anything like that, it makes you more vulnerable. And, you know, for, for, for every hundred people who get it, there's going to be five or ten people who are really sick with it, and a few of them will require hospitalisation. And we've seen with the accident and emergency that happens right throughout the country at the moment that they're all really overwhelmed with the number of people that are are, are coming in. And some of them are really sick. And then the other group, um, unfortunately, positive, which can get quite sick, are, are, are small babies, particularly from respiratory syncytiovirus. That they, you know, they have difficulty feeding uh, and they get all blocked up and things like that. And they're the other group which are, are, are probably more vulnerable. John, I know you mentioned there a moment ago that, you know, the uh, South Dock is understaffed and, and you know, you, you've been bringing in extra doctors. But I've spoken to one mother, where a mother of a two and a four year old, and it took almost eight hours, I think, in eight, maybe possibly ten hours before she got a call back. Uh, these two children, you know, thrown on the bed, dying sick, and basically she was afraid to bring her kids to hospital, so she said, I'll turn to my GP or South Dock, and it took so long to get the call back. I mean, that's not acceptable, John. No, it certainly isn't, and and, and the problem is that South Dock at the moment now has become the day day factor because of the shortage of of, of general practitioners out there. Um, a lot of people can't get in to see their GP. There's a huge shortage of GPs nationally. So Southock has be kind of become the spillover for, for, for a lot of, uh, of those cases. And unfortunately, Paul, during the, even over the Christmas holidays in West Cork, they had difficulty even because the number of doctors got sick. So they had even difficulties getting doctors to, 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 to man some of the um, and, and stations. Um, my, one of my colleagues came in extra the other night because another doctor was sick. Um, so, so South Dock is, is quite stretched, and general practice uh, as a body is quite stretched. I mean, I'm sure you have callers who difficulty getting appointments, and we're, we're, you know, a lot of practices are putting on extra clinics or late clinics to try to cope with the, uh, um, some of the demand over the next few weeks as well. It is, it is, it is there's, there's no easy solution to this. It, it's going to require many, many sort of different things happening. You know, and the other thing I'm finding, Paul, is. If I see someone who's very unwell and we have to send them to A&E, no one wants to go to A&E because, you know, reading all the stories of the trolleys and the, you know, waiting and all of that. And it's sometimes very hard for an older person to persuade them to go to A&E when they need to go, you know. But sometimes we just just have to be in hospital. And once they get in, it's fine, but it's... Getting in is, is a real hard thing. John, um, there was a tweet from Dermot O'Sullivan over the Christmas. Uh, he's the, the boss man at Greenwich Cafe on Caroline Street. And the tweet went something like this. Was anyone not sick? We need to bring back face coverings for winter. They are snug too. Mm. Are we going to see um, the reintroduction of masks? I don't think we'll see the reintroduction of compulsory mask wearing. 
But what I would encourage people is, I mean, in most healthcare settings, they're, they're, they're worn routinely. So I think if anyone is, I suppose, first of all, feeling unwell, if they're feeling flu, you know, the sensible thing is to sort of not go to work, not to, you know, mix just to avoid spreading it. And then if you're also feeling a bit vulnerable or if you have some underlying condition, it might make sense for you, you know, for, for you to wear a mask. So I think you'll see an increase in mask wearing, but I don't think it'll be bought in as a compulsory um, measure. I have seen a, an increase, I think, in the number of people wearing masks in their own shopping centres and, you know, just in general. You're saying it won't be brought back in. Would you be in favour of, of it being brought back in? I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be in favour of being brought back in compulsory. I think you know that was a, that was a really special circumstances. And um, I think like that. But the number mixing, of people in hospital at the moment with COVID is up, and it, compared it, to it, this time last week, it certainly is. But I think it, it's about more redoubling the efforts of hand washing, you know, distancing if you're sick, avoiding people, you know, um, you know, all of those sensible measures rather than a compulsory mask wearing. Like during the COVID when um, everyone was social distancing and the hand washing and all of that, we, we didn't see a single case of flu um, during that period. So those measures do make a difference for all of the infections, COVID, flu, respiratory, syncytiovirus, all of those um, and, and infections. Those practical, simple measures make, make a difference. And the HSE website under the, under the weather is quite a good website in terms of giving practical advice how to manage um, a lot of these symptoms as well. All right. Dr. John Sheehan, Blackpool Bridge Surgery, many, many thanks for uh, talking to us this morning and uh, stay safe, John. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Now, a short while ago, we were talking to Ralph Regal with the Irish Independent about law and order. Uh, John is on the line. He says there is no law, there is no punishment. Good morning, John. Good morning, Paul. Happy New Year to you, buddy. Happy returns. Not too bad. John... What's gone wrong? Is there, you say there's no law, there's no punishment. Um, are people just being allowed to get away with, uh, basically get away with murder? Um, basically, Paul, yeah. Um, look for what Cork has gone through there in the last month. No, it is all over the country, but between what happened in Cork and what happened in Kerry there recently, um, there, there's no law there, as far as I'm concerned, that the law does not affect the crime or the punishment that's handed out. Um this fellow's been murdered, this fellow's been stabbed, Paul. Um, what happened down in Carrigal Line? Um, it's nearly on our own doorstep now at the moment. But the, it seems that the judges in the courts, they're the people at fault. But, I, but said a while ago, I said a while ago that the judges are handing out the sentences that, you know, they're, 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 their hands are tied because of the legislation. It, and Ralph was saying people must shout from the rooftops tell your TDs, tell your ministers uh, that you want tougher laws. It's The judge's hands are tied. The law is the law. And it is true, Paul. It's the legislation needs to change. It's not strong enough. People are getting minimum t- sentences. They're getting the free legal aid. The free legal aid needs to stop. And stop once and for all. If people know it's hitting them in the back pocket, they don't belong copping on. You know that yourself, and that's right across the board. But it's the legislation. It's our politicians. The politicians... They want, sometimes they want to listen more times than they don't. We have our Taoiseach here in Cork, unfortunately, he's after changing. He's no longer the Taoiseach, but, geez, what has that man done regarding the legislations in, in this country? Nothing. What has Fianna Fáil done? What has Fianna Gael done? Uh, Sinn Féin, Labour, you name them. Nothing, Paul. If, Nothing's being done by our politicians. If somebody is attacked on our streets, John, a man walking down the street, a woman walking down the street, and he or she is attacked for no reason and they're sustained, sustained injuries, what should they get, even if they have a clean record, they've got no uh, previous, what kind of punishment should be handed out? Paul, life for life. Like, it's eye for an eye. 
that's the way it was. We were brought up in a different generation altogether, Paul. If you had the girls come into your door, buddy, you knew about it. You know that kind of way. Mm-hmm. They're not afraid of the guards any longer. They're not afraid of the guards. I, I, I haven't a clue why a person would get into the guard in this country, to be quite honest. Any guard station out there is full to the brim with little petty stuff that's going on. But you'll hear of people, it's conviction after conviction after conviction after convictions. How many, how many convictions does a person need before they really go, go into, the, into our jails, into our prisons? Nothing happens, you know what I mean? It's really down to our politicians to change all this. That poor girl inside in Cork City, God bless the woman. Okay, what but why, why, line, you why, know? Aren't the politi- are the, why aren't the politicians listening? They don't, Paul, that's the problem, unless it happens on their own doorstep. You know, I've, the politicians I've, aren't interested, and that's the main thing. And any politician comes on the radio there this morning to yourself and says to you that they do care and they do this, they're doing nothing, Paul. You know? They need to stand, our own politicians need to stand up and say, right, enough is enough, lads. We need to change this legislation and give support to the judges and its maximum um, term or maximum sentences should be handed out. There's no minimum service. There's no good going in and being on good behaviour and you're left out again in 10. If you're um, you're around there about free legal aid, I mean, if, if you're given free legal aid, nine times out of ten, somebody who may be on social welfare receives, uh, an, you know, free legal aid, or they're, they're on a low salary, should it be taken out of their dole money? Should it be taken out of a salary? Should it be taken at source? Of course it should. Of course it should. It be taken out of mine and yours straight away, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Have you, you ever worked hard for your money, Paul? You're out there six, seven days a week. Have you ever been the victim of crime yourself? Um, car breakings, no, not that kind of stuff, but nothing, nothing seriously, thanks to the God, and nothing to my family, thanks to the God, like, you know. And the car, I mean, did they catch whoever broke into your car or anything, like? Uh, no, 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 there was four or five cars on the town and on the same night, like, you know, our car was written off. All right, so get tough, time to, for politicians. Get time for politicians, and one politician comes on the other this morning and said, oh yeah, they're going to go take it up to the door, and they're going to do this and do that, I'd love to see him doing it. But, Paul, it's getting out of hand. Cork City is not a safe city of the night time. It's not safe of a daytime. My mum used to go into Cork four or five days a week. That's all stopped, Paul. It's not safe inside our own city. All right. It's very sad to hear something like that, genuinely. It's It's so sad. Again, looking down onto our beautiful Patrick Street and and to hear someone saying that, that that it's not safe, it's... And it's just not in the main street thoroughfares in the city. It's all over the city. You know? Paul, you know it yourself. You're not even far from out the road from Cork City. You would not go into the city of a night time. Well, I, I must say, I'm too old anyway to be going out at this stage of my life, but I, I, I remember years ago in New York, genuinely at three and four o'clock in the morning, I did feel safer walking down the streets of New York than I would walking through any street in Ireland at the moment. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I'm living in McCroom. I wouldn't come into Cork City of a night time for no God nor money. Forget about it, lad. It's not safe. Unless I got a taxi there to collect me from outside the pub that I'm in, forget about it. Right. And I'm not much older than yourself, Paul, but at the same time, the law needs to change. Our politicians need to stand up and change. The law, are, at the moment, Paul, you can do the crime, there's no punishment there, buddy. And unless it happens on your own doorstep, that's, that's, the, that's what our politicians need to stand up like, you know? Thanks, John. Stay safe. Uh, another John, the buck stops with the Minister for Justice. John, I don't know who I think it is. Good morning, John. Good morning, Paul. I, w- I wouldn't class you exactly over the hill, so give yourself a break. <laughs> and 21 plus of that, and that's at the old rate. <laughs> 
But yeah, the, the book stops. I've always said this. The book stops with the Minister for Justice right now. The current Minister for Justice, who's out in maternity leave, seems to be more fixated on hate crime and hate speech, which to me will be shutting down all form of protests on social media and even people protesting against politicians. I think there's a hidden agenda there. People have no idea what's embedded in that hate law. Gary, you can actually enter your home if they're suspected of hate crime literature in the house or anything like that. They can use reasonable force to get in the door. And people have no idea, I suggest they research what that bill is all about because it's infringing on civil liberties and everything else. But at the end of the day, how many, I remember uh, John Lanigan, the former governor of Mount Shire, and he wrote a book called The Governor. And I don't know, did you read it or not, Paul? And in that book, he refers to it, and I've heard him in interview down over the years. And as long as he was the governor of Mount Shire, at the cold face, right, no sitting municipal justice ever visited Mount Shire when he was governor. Now, doesn't, doesn't that say a lot, doesn't it? Why would you not talk, Paul, to the very man that's at the cold face that sees it, how people, young people especially, end up with several convictions inside the likes of Mount Shire? And yet nobody bothered to win and ask the man that was dealing with it daily. John Landigan said that he's seen three generations of families come in. You were the grandfather, you had the son, and the grandson was coming in then. That's three generations of one family, Paul, ending up in criminality. For the simple reason, again, we need about, they reckon, about 5,000 social workers, which, God help us, will we ever get them? Because if there's problems in families, it needs to be sorted. Otherwise, you're going to get the same young fellas from the same families and the same areas, and unfortunately, a lot of things are working class areas, standing in front of the same judge with the same legal aid, and the bloody circus goes okay, on John, and on. John, in fair, sorry for cutting you off because we're tight for time, but I want to ask you a question very briefly, okay? You come on this radio station morning after morning, in fairness to you, you you're, you're very vocal and you, you've got your points. Why don't you run for politics? And honestly, and I mean that sincerely, mm-hmm. why don't you try and become a TD and stand up there in the doyle and, 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 and tell the politicians those in power, instead of telling me but you see, the problem is, like, uh, who's going to listen to an independent? Because I wouldn't join a Jesus, party. Jesus, listen to Jackie, or the Healy Rays, uh, Matty McGrath. These guys are yeah. holding the government to account. Why can't you do it? They are, but the problem is, you see, who's listening to them, Paul? Is the Minister of Justice listening to those people? They're not listening to those either. They're, they won't. I mean, time and time again, you report crime, you'll be over your microphone with TV3 or you'll be on this show or whatever. And it just goes on. The circus goes on for the simple reason. People that put themselves uh, forward and they get these serious positions in life as Minister of Justice are not doing the job. Simple as that. All and right. it's, a ter- it's a terrible thing to say that people are now afraid to go into Cork City at night because that affects the nighttime economy, and we have to have a nighttime economy. It affects jobs and it affects people socialising, and that's wrong. I never remember that in the 70s. All right. John, thanks a million for talking to us. We might see you next time in Leinster House. I want to go to line two, Councillor Ted Tynan. Good morning, Ted. Morning, Paul. Yeah. Um, uh, you, you mentioned here two former guards, John O'Connor and Trevor Laffin. They were great community guards. You'd like to see yeah. the likes of them coming in and talking to the schools. And we, we need community guards again. Exactly, Paul. Like, I have an article here written by um, Trevor Laffin. Um, uh, 2021, June 2021. And the heading on the article was Community Policing Works. My time in Mayfield proved it. Now, Mayfield or Carrigaline or Nachtahini or Douglas Village or anything, you will always have a certain element in 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 num in various parts of the city. And what what's happening is that and and, and I I remember living in Glenham Island, um, 
many years ago, but working in the area at night time, 11 and 12 o'clock, you'd see uniformed Gardaí, like Trevor Laffin and John O'Connor, walking around the estate and saying, come on, lads, time to go home. There'll be kids gathering. And these are guys that, as well who got to know the lads in the community, you know, right, and yeah, yeah. They, they weren't in there yeah. for a week and transferred down to Blackrock. They, exactly, they grew yeah. up within the community, I suppose, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, they were real community policing. They had a relationship with the people in the area. People felt safe when they see a uniformed guardy walking past their front door. And nowadays, that's gone. Now, occasionally, the guardy in Mayfield will make an effort and indeed... One or two community guardians at the moment are working on various issues in the area, and but the problem is uh, lack of resources. And in fact, I was listening to uh, Councillor McGrath, who represents the Carrigaline area, and he talked. He's a phenophile councillor. His brother is um, in finance in in on the cabinet. And he said that there's a need for more guardians in the area. You know, and I suppose so, if Michael McGrath isn't listening to his brother. What are we going yeah. to do? <laughs> you see, Paul, the political system, um, and look, I, I, I could have a debate with John Shane as well about the public health service, which is chaotic at the moment due to the privatisation of health services. All right. Like my ideology doesn't go down too well with a lot of people, but things need to be said, Paul, and comments need to be made. And uh, like... In, in, in another comment there from Trevor Laffin, community policing is not part-time. It begins with children in primary schools and continues, continues until they reach adulthood. adulthood. All right. And that's it. Listen, um, Six and eight and ten-year-old kids see the Gardaí as their yeah. friend also, by the way. Yeah. Good, decent community policing. They know then that there's consequence for their actions if they misbehave, you know. So. All right. I suppose it starts at the top. The Minister for Justice needs to get... Uh, their act together and uh, yeah. try and sort yeah. out, get more. And also, when somebody's establishment, political parties have their annual conferences, their Ardesh, like Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Labour, they have private security on their premises. All right. You know what I mean? Listen, that would tell you a story, wouldn't it? Ted, I'm sorry, we're very caught for time. But listen, stay safe. You, 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 you do sound under the weather yourself with that uh, respiratory infection, but stay well, get well. And just in case John O'Connor and Trevor Laffin, former retired community guards, are listening and they want to come on and talk to us about, you know, working within the community, give us a call, lads. All right? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. And there you have a voice that we'll sadly no longer hear. The late, great, and a part of Cork's rich history. That's the late Michael O'Regan. 70 years of age, yet an echo boy. No matter what age you were or are, you'll always be an echo boy. And I just want to read something out here. It says, Michael worked hard to find the good in everybody and shut his mind out to negativity. It worked for him. He was nice to people and the people of Cork were very nice to him. Those are the lovely words of his sister-in-law, Teresa. Teresa, good morning. Good morning, Paul. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. What is it like to have a brother-in-law who is famous or was famous right throughout Cork all his life. He was such a part and parcel of this wonderful city. He was indeed, yeah, and he took everything in his stride. 
He was just quiet, just a simple man, really. And everybody loved him. Yeah, what what was it? I mean, everybody was drawn to him. They were, they were, yeah. He was so quiet, quiet in his ways and everything. He couldn't see harm in anybody. I interviewed him several times over the years uh, for Virgin okay. Media News. The times maybe that he celebrated milestones, you know, celebrating the the sale of his one uh, hundred or one millionth paper, and uh, you okay. know, and the, the time he was um, seventy years of age. He was a very quiet man underneath it all. Very quiet. Sure, we didn't know the half of him really. <laughs> he what was happened in town was totally different at home. Was he no rogue? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. You never knew what was going through him. Never knew it. Tell me a little bit about him. Um, he was 70 years of age. and He started selling Echoes at a very young age. Yeah, he started selling the Echoes at the age of 10. And it was really when his mother died 30 years ago that we took... Our, we, took we were looking after him then because he had health issues. He was an epileptic. He could not be left alone. There was always someone with him. And we were very lucky in that extent that we, our family were very good. Our boys were doing their turns to stay with him at night and make sure that he was okay. Listening to you this morning or talking to you this morning, I think there will be thousands and thousands of people very excited to hear about Michael away from Patrick Street. The Michael O'Regan we didn't know about, really. Oh, yes. Yeah, Michael would fall asleep on the chair. Michael and Michael, time to go to bed, and he just... Open his eyes with a smile on his face. He was always smiling. There was never a crossword from him. How was he always so jovial? Because he was out there in all sorts of weather. Oh, yeah. And sure, if you were the person that was buying an echo from him, if you were the only person and didn't come until 10 o'clock at night, he'd be waiting for you because you were his customer and he couldn't let his customers down. That's the way it was with him. Dedication to the last... Oh, totally, totally. And he had some wonderful friends inside the town who were very, very good to him. The likes of Barry Moff, you know, in Princess Street, Moffy's Electrical, he was very kind to him. And Barry's shoe shop at the end of Princess Street, there was actually a girl came to me one day and she, I didn't know her, but she told me any time he'd be looking for a birthday card or a Christmas card. Trish was the girl's name. She was the one that always signed the cards from in front of me. We never knew it. But lately, Mary Rose was saying this is all. He used to go to her every day for his lunch and she closed down. He had loads of friends that used to come to him. And one thing that stuck out within us that came up on Facebook about some lad by the name of Chris that had a brain tumour. He used to come to Michael every day and bring him a cup of tea, a cup of coffee or whatever. But then that lad went to Dublin and unfortunately he passed away. But before he did, Michael had gone to see him up in Dublin. We didn't know that, you know. He'd just take off and do his own thing. Oh. Which, these are lovely things to hear coming from people. Were you surprised and somewhat, I suppose, comforted in the fact that there were so many moving tributes to um, your brother-in-law, Michael? Oh, sure, they were fantastic, yeah. They were lovely to hear it. Even if I was in town with him, with my husband, and he'd we'd meet somebody, he could be talking to somebody. He never called... Sean, his brother, was always his sister-in-law and her husband. That was the way. That was the way he was come out. And and speaking of Sean, Sean is there with you, I think, is he? He is. Yeah, he is. Can yeah. I have a word with him? Without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. Okay, Paul. Thank you. Hello, Paul. Sean. Good morning. How are you? Morning. 
Sean, um, I, I'm just reading something here with you. Said, I, I mean, and we know that he loved the people of Cork and he loved Patrick Street. Yeah. He was shy, but anything to do with Cork and Patrick Street in particular, it ignited him. Oh, totally, totally. It was his whole life. Like we, all the things we've read, we didn't know a fraction of the man of what he was doing. Tom, he'd go in, in the morning, get the first bus in, quarter past seven. We'd be home again twelve hours later. Would sit down, then he would do his his. Um, he would do his accounts for the papers for the day, segregate everything into the different uh, bunches for different companies. We say Cornell News, the examiner office. He'd have all that done before he'd even have his dinner. Go away. All I just thought he dedicated to the newspaper, like selling papers. Meeting people was the biggest thing in his life. You know? And He's then when, when, he, when he wasn't in Patrick Street, just travelled or down to Pipers every summer. That's right. He's been he was, 40 years in Pipers as well. Yeah, I remember him in the Marys in Crosshaven. I remember oh, him yeah. well. On the boats, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he started, of course, selling uh, the papers outside what was formerly the Bank of Ireland and Patrick Street. It's now the, the Centra, and I think there's a pharmacy there as well alongside. Yeah, and so I, I, always remember him, yeah. I always remember him, he used to say, I, I can't do it now, but uh, I'll try it. Press independent paper, read all about an extra examiner. <laughs> he used to do the press and the Indo as well at the time. Oh, he did the whole lot, yeah. Yeah, he did the whole lot. But um, oh no, a larger than life character. I'm not all about that. Like, and then I, I, I only heard a story of him there recently. He, he had a few friends that he would travel up and down to all Ireland's with, and they came back from one all Ireland there one day, and um, himself and a fellow called Donny. He gave Donny his ticket, and he had his own ticket, and they went through the turnstile to come into Cork, and Michael went through Grand, and then Donny came up to the turnstile and tried to put in his ticket, but the, the tourist said wouldn't take the ticket. And he tried it four or five times. Eventually, he called one of the inspectors. The inspector tried it. It still didn't work. And when the inspector looked at the ticket, it was 12 months out of date. <laughs> and, 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 and that was Michael. He never threw away anything. So it was still in his pockets. You know, these are the stories that are coming out now, like. And he, went, he used to go to Valley Cotton every year for the five-mile road. Right? Never ran, but always, every year. He used to go to uh, John Buckley Sports in the marina every year. You know, the, he, he had a calendar like in his head when, 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 of dates of when things would happen. The Lord Mayor's inauguration would go to those. He had everything in his yeah, head. Yeah, actually, isn't am I right? Michael never missed a council meeting. Am I correct? No, he went to he, he went to fifty one of them. The only ones he missed now was when COVID hit, yeah. and they couldn't hold it in the city hall anymore. They were holding it then in places like Ballincolly School or something. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was only very few people got invited in because of the COVID. But up to that, he'd been to sort of 51 inaugurations, right? Jesus. And it like, got to the stage he didn't even need a ticket in the end. He didn't know he just turned up. I know. But that, that was that. Everyone liked him. Like, that was just the way he was. When you found out, no, that he was travelling to the Ballycotton 5K and he was going to yeah. this and he's with that, I mean... I, I I I always and I mean this with respect. I always got the impression that Michael would get up, collect his newspapers, go to his pitch, and go home. Uh, besides the Marys at summertime, but I always got the impression that he just went from A to B and back to A. You know, it's great to hear that he led such an active life. Oh no, actually, look, we say now let's say in the summertime, papers would be on. He'd go in on a Saturday morning. He'd do all his papers. He'd get a bus then at seven o'clock down to Kingsale. He'd be in Kingsale then for the weekend with the Pipers working away there and he'd get the first bus back to Patrick Street next morning or Monday morning but then when Pipers weren't working and we say the winter weekends Michael would head off on a bus trip up to Galway up anywhere it could be anywhere he'd go he'd been up to Belfast a few times you know and 
just met people and talked to them and enjoyed their company and whatever. All day long, do a bit of shopping in Dublin, a bit of shopping in Galway, wherever he went. That's just the way he was. There's somebody here texting here. Did he have a mobile phone? <laughs> no. Oh, yeah, he did. He did. did. He? he had a mobile phone. But he wasn't afraid that would answer us. You could <laughs> ring him, but it was a case of, like, if he had to ring you, it was a case he was losing money then. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you could ring him and he, he, he talked to you, all right? Like, there's no problem there. Yeah. But well, then, he wasn't going to ring he had him. a mobile phone. You know? He had his confirmation money, so did he? Sorry? <laughs> he had his confirmation money, so he had... Well, well look, I suppose when, you, when you're selling papers that long, you'll always make a few pounds, but he, he won't have half the money that people think he has. I know, I'm only... I'm I mean, I'm only hearing a story about him being a millionaire and this, and that's no such thing. You sell a lot of papers before you become a millionaire, and a million wouldn't do it. Tell me, yeah. what happened to Michael? When when did he uh, become sick? He he actually got sick a few years ago. He ended up with um, um, a, a, a blood vessel burst in his leg. That was about three years ago. And um, that was the time he started to retire then because it was too much for him. Like. But like, once he got over that, of course, when you're supposed to keep the, el- the elastic stocking up your leg, Mike was too uncomfortable for Michael, so he decided to roll it down. And then he got flew on the knee, which didn't help him. And he also had like um, three, four twisted bowls. So like things... Over, over the number of years, he's had about two years illness-wise. And I mean, ha- listening to you there, outlining his illnesses, you, I mean, yeah. you would think that he would have gotten the pleurisy or TB or, you know, pneumonia for being out in the weather, but it, he, he didn't He didn't seem to get the flu. He got everything else bar the flu. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no problem with that. I suppose, I suppose he just got immune to the weather, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? I mean, it didn't matter. When, he often came in at night time and he would be saturated in the skin, like, you know? But like... Didn't matter to him. Like, if once he got the paper to his customer, that's all that mattered to him. And no. st- started selling the papers at 10 years of age. Did Michael, uh, had he schooling before that or anything? Oh, yeah. We were, we were both up in uh, St. George's Marley because we were, we were schooled. Right. Yeah. But uh, once he started well, papers, and that was, it took over from there. Well, oh, he, he packed up school at 10 and ju- just went to the papers. Well, I know. He went, he went, he just stayed on for school a bit after that. Oh, like. right. But, um, Papers were still the thing, like, as you got to remember, during the day, there was no echo. The echoes were always in the evening then, and not yeah, the, yeah. the morning now, but I mean, they were only, they were only evening then. You could, you, could, you could finish your school and then go down and get your, your bundle, like. Did he have any interest in politics or anything like that? I know, I mean, he's yeah. met politicians from all walks of life in Partick Street when they'd be campaigning in the elections, but was he a, a political head himself or anything? Oh, he would be fierce interest in politics. Was he? There's not, there's not, he would watch every every political show on, on television, every debate, everything. He would love all that. Like the same as budgets, he would get out the the, the Times, the Echo, or the Examiner, the Times, and a couple of other papers to go through the budget. When the budget, we only, he'd be quite happy if he was off that day. He'd sit down all day and watch it on the television and go through everything. Goodness, fierce interested in those people. See, they were all they were they all liked him as well. So and they, they didn't have to come from Cork; they came from other countries as well. Like, yeah, just, it, you, you must be very, very proud to have a man oh, who was so yeah, well yeah. known, or to have a brother who was so well known. Oh, totally! Like, I mean, even when he got um, Cork only of the decade, they were like, sure, that was a fantastic thing from as well. Like, I mean, just proud of Cork altogether. Like. And did any you know? of that, like, uh, I, I, I presume it didn't go to his head because he was so level, uh, <laughs> low, level-headed, really, wasn't he? No, there was nothing would go to his head. Nothing like that. He never got big-headed. Always level. Never, you know. 
I mean, things were simple with Michael. Yeah. Michael was like, Michael was, uh, as, as, my, as my son said in his eulogy, Michael was like a big child, but as cute as a fox. And at any time, you never knew which one of you were talking to. And he managed to get invited onto uh, the stage to switch on the Christmas lights here in Cork with uh, 96 FM a couple of years ago. He did, yeah, with any gear, eh? <laughs> well, I know I live with Teresa. Teresa. You're on Sorry Paul, you're on a boat and switching, switching on the lights. Switching on the lights with here with uh, Ken Parrott of 96 yeah. FM and Anna Geary a couple of years ago. 2014, I think. Yes, and I tell you, he was the only one got past Anna Geary. <laughs> <laughs> He beat her to it. That was great. It was great. That was a great achievement for him. What? Oh, it was lovely. What? I know we were talking to Sean. What about brothers and sisters? How many were in the family? Two. Just Sean and himself? Just Sean and himself, yeah. And where did they live? Where was he living? They lived up. They, lived, they, were, they were in Calabi Street when they were young, and then they got a house out and left on the road up in Balafihan. Right. He lived there then with his mother until she died 30 years ago. Oh, that uh, was God, that's not long ago, really, in one sense. God, 30 years, yeah, yeah, yeah. And when his mum yeah. died, you know, did things change for him or anyway, you know, did he... Well, it did, of course, he missed her terrible, but sure, then we took over looking after him, so once he had somebody to care for him, look after him, he was okay. Even the day his mother died, he had to go in to sell the papers. Go away? Oh, yeah, the day his mother died. He had to go in because his papers would be there for him. So he went in and he sold his papers inside and told as usual and told everybody then about the bad news his mother had passed away. Christ, what a man. I know, I know, he was unbelievable. Like when he got the cock on in of the decade there with 96 FM, he never received anything. He was waiting and waiting and people were congratulating him and... So he went away himself down to Gerald McCarthy and he got a trophy. Cockone needed the decade and he had that up on his stand then so everybody would see it. Theresa, I'm sure somebody will make up for, for, for that. They may be sorry. I, I, I can't take, I don't know, I'm only in here for the day. I'm sure somebody will look into that. But uh, tell sure me, that, was, that was very sore in the family. That was, tell that me this, tell me, can I ask you a question? Yeah. What has Cork lost? Well, they've lost an agent because everybody knew him. Everybody knew him. And he, as I said, he had some wonderful friends. When it came to switching on the lights and cock, the family and the chicken in inside in the market, they dressed him from head to toe and were so proud to do it. Do you know? They just wanted to make sure he looked well and everything. We didn't know anything about it until he told us it was after happening. <laughs> he, wouldn't, he didn't tell us. But I must say, he had some lovely friends. Pat O'Connell inside in the market was very good to him. There's loads. There's loads of people. And I think it's wonderful to be able to say that and to hear all the tributes, you know. Unfortunately, at times, it, it, you don't hear these things until someone dies. And that's, that's life, isn't that's it? That's it. That's it. That's it. At the exam office now, they all turned up for his funeral. And it was, it was lovely. It was, very, it was very nice now. You know, people, we'd have heard their names. We would never have met them, you know, only just to hear them speak about them. But he had never had an enemy anyway, because I'd say to him, who's this person? That's a friend. Who's that person? That's a friend. Never know who they were, but they were all his friends. He saw harm in nobody. A remarkable nobody. man. A remarkable man. Oh, he man. was. He was, yeah. Uh, uh, 72 again, he was last October. 72. 
72, but unfortunately his health, when his health went down, he went down. Do you know, it was too sad. Well, you know, talking to you and Sean this morning, we've learned an awful lot about Michael O'Regan. As I said to Sean, we wanted to hear about the man who... You know, who didn't stand outside Cavendish's years ago no. or stand outside the Bank uh-huh. of Ireland. Right. We wanted to hear about Michael O'Regan, the man away from the pitch. And I think yes. you've done a beautiful tribute to your brother-in-law and Sean yes. has paid a remarkable tribute to yes. his br- yes. late brother. And yes. it's a big void in our lives now. But there were so many things came up on Facebook. We actually, there was another one came up the other day there about some girl. 20 years ago, she fainted inside in town and Michael was over to the Battle of Ireland. You know, all these things. These are lovely things to hear. Gorgeous. Well, they are lovely, yeah. Teresa, Sean, yes. thank you so much for talking to us. And all I can say is our sympathies to you and uh, everybody and all of the family and the people of Cork today, Tuesday the 3rd of January. We salute the late yeah. Michael O'Regan. Before the break, we were talking to Sean O'Regan, brother of the late Michael O'Regan. We also spoke to uh, Teresa, his uh, sister-in-law. And during that conversation, we mentioned Piper's Fun Fair in uh, Crosshaven and Kinsale. And uh, Brendan Piper, good morning. Good morning, Paul. How are you? Brendan, your late Not grandfather set up the Fun Fair back in 1932, and Michael O'Regan joined the Fun Fair as well during the summer. And I know his death has been a, a terrible loss to yourselves. Yeah, Paul, we got the news. Um, just were devastated. Came out completely shocked altogether. Um, first of all, before I start, I'd like to send her condolences to um, Theresa, Sean, and family on behalf of the, the Piper family and all the family in the, the fun fair. Yeah, the, when I to sit down, Paul, and write about, think about Michael, I had to put it to paper, pen to paper, because there was so, so many stories over the years. And when I sit there, this, sit down to write about Michael O'Regan, the showman, that I, uh, my, my eyes kind of filled up as well as I was writing it. But the story about Michael with the fun first started. Michael joined Piper's Fun for a King Seal at the age of 15 years. At that time, my grandfather and father, Bill, were running the fun fair during the summer season. Every Saturday evening, Mick would get the bus from Cork to King Seal to work the weekends during the summer seasons. In over 50 years with the fun fair, Mick never missed a weekend working. At age 15, Mick started operating swinging boats in a more recent, and, and in more recent years was in the token chaos. At a young age, with my brothers and sister, we worked alongside Mick at the fun fair. My memories of Michael are that he was a very loyal, honest and trustworthy person. He was a quiet man until you got to know him. Over the years at the fun fair, People got to know him, and my father, Bill, always says that Mick was the most photographed man at the fun fair every summer. One of my memories of Mike, Mick was is when he trained a local lad, Anthony Barry, at the age of 10 years, on how to operate the swinging boats and how to start and stop a boat. With Mick saying, keep your back straight, bend your legs, and don't pull the brake hard. He had two reasons for this. First reason, it will jolt the customer out of the seat, and the second, it would wear the brake down as the brake was made of timber. And to this day, Anthony, who has been 
with the fund for, for over 40 years, did applies mixed instructions when he is training new staff members on the swinging boats. In 2016, The Showman, a book about the story of the Kingsale Funfair, was written by June Furhead. In it, Mick is asked his time at the Funfair, and he said that as a child, he fell in love with smiles and laughter at the Funfair. He loves the banter and the crack, and Mick always was and always will be part of the Piper and Kingsale Funfair family. Michael, true showman, you will be missed. Rest in peace. That's beautiful, Brendan. Absolutely gorgeous. He was um, a gentle was giant. The man, he was a gentle giant, a wasn't gentle. he? A gentle giant. And he's called a legend. He was bigger than the legend. A gentle giant. A man. He had a heart so big and a smile that was so warm. You're hurting. You're, when he you're, when you're, he used you're hurting, aren't you? Of course we're all hurting. Of course we're all hurting. It's, it's it is a big it is a big it is like I won't compare the machine a kid's machine you put in the front for does it gap there? Mm-hmm. That gap will be odd. You will never fill that gap. How did he, well, he meet you like at the age of fifteen? How did how did you meet him first day? Did he just turn up at the gate? I don't know. I think the, I, I I think he um he met the grandfather and he got talking to the grandfather. You see Piper's Piper's a King Seal. My grandfather uh, in King Seal was um, part of Joe. Hello. Having problems with the line. Hopefully we'll get back to Brendan. Are you there, Brendan? No. All right. Unfortunately, we lost one. We'll try and get back to him in a moment. I want to talk to um, Donald Cronin. Donald, good morning. Sorry. Line two. Donald? Morning, morning, Paul. How are you? How are you doing? Donald, your late father, we knew him well, um, an echo boy. As I said, no matter what age you are, you're always an echo boy. But you're, you're, um, you're son of Jerry Cronin, who we all knew from standing outside St. Augustine's Church. Himself and um, the late Michael O'Regan, your late father, they were good buddies. They were. I'd like to say and pass on my sympathies to Michael's uh, family there, please, because I got a phone call off of Donald Kefo, the examiner office last week. To pass a comment on him and uh, about Mike and would I say a few words and what I remember being down the echo lane with my father wherever the order Mike has been said there numerous of times he was a gentle giant he was very very shy but very caring person and that's been for a big man and everyone knew him as a big person as well and a big heart but people don't remember Paul is they were so dedicated to selling the echoes and examiners they were so dedicated to their customers, people forget about that, that they would count coins there with a blink of an eye that wouldn't even bother them, and they'd get it so correct every time. Or to get the money returned, and whether it be the examiner, the, the echo, the tabloids, the independent, as you said, because I remember Michael saying those words myself. But there used to be fair banter between down the lane where, like, you know, you'd have... That's, yeah, it, that, that's for, for people who don't know what we're talking about. That's at the back of the uh, the examiner office or up the side of the Johnson & Parrots, well, sorry, what was Johnson & Parrots in Emmett Place, yeah. where they get where, the echoes where, there. The pub used to be called the Grand Soccer yeah, there on the corner. Yeah, up the lane with there, yeah. Well, what it was, Paul, it was very competitive, right? But underneath it all, the banter, there was a bit of a, a band of brothers down there, if you understand what I'm trying to they say. They were family, that. weren't they? They were, they were, but they never said, I saw this, <laughs> what would you say? They never said, they love each other or hugged each other, but the respect shown for a fella that was 
a good seller of papers, or I used to sell more, or I used to be out in our weathers and that. That respect was an unwritten thing down there. It was between Michael O'Regan, Johnny Keller, Don Manny's, the Joyce's, the Duggins, the Sullivan's, me dad. The whole, I, could call, I could go on forever, and there's probably a couple of people I didn't mention. But for, I apologize for that. But I can say, Michael O'Regan would be similar to my father. He used to be on all weathers. My father used to have a bit of a shelter in an archway in St. Augustine's. Michael O'Regan used to have nothing, that, nothing like that. No. Nothing like that. I remember he used to wear this sort of... Big crumbie. Big crumbie, right? But he used to have a woolen sort of... that He used to have around his neck and his head. So the wool would get wet in. That would be even harder on his hair or his head. Do you know what I mean? Me too. So I, I'm just saying to my to his family and the, the people that don't know about the inside of... Uh, we knew nothing about my own father as well, uh, Paul. And I'm not going to make it about my father this morning. It's about Michael O'Regan. And when I hear his family saying they, they didn't know a fraction of all the tributes and what he used to do and everything, I fully ex- I understand where they came from. Because what we got to learn about our father after his death, what he it was sad because we never shared those moments with him. They didn't tell us. And whatever it is, they didn't, they didn't broadcast it. Like, you know what I mean? And his sister are going on about small things there. The Battle of Orange. Michael Regan was a gentle, gentle mm-hmm. soul. And I mean it like he was a big man, but he was as gentle. I always got I, the impression I, that the Echo Boys, they knew more about this city than anyone else. As I said, people, as I said it before, um, Paul, and I, I don't mean this because disrespectful, there's, this, there's an Echo Boy in every part of the North Side family, yeah. maybe Southside families as such, but they were very committed workers, right? But I can tell you one thing, the knowledge that they had of the city was absolutely unreal. Like, Mick O'Regan, my father, Johnny Keller, they could tell you what buildings were there 150 years ago, do you know what I mean? Mm. What was there, or how many houses, what family lived in Cork, or how many lived in that family. It was incredible. They wouldn't, like, like a blink of an eye, they wouldn't, they'd tell you all these things, right? And I remember, so, I remember somebody telling me one day that um, they, they treated, uh, or sorry, not treated, but they looked at their Echo Boy as a type of priest where they'd go away and talk to the echo boy and confess everything that was going on at home i'm having hassle with the wife i'm having hassle with the husband i'm out to throw the son out or i'm out to being thrown out they were the, the the echo boys were people that people used to honestly go up and tell their stories to they were like agony ants confiding yeah. and like i'm saying i've seen people walk up to michael o'regan and talk to him and they wouldn't even buy a paper off them, believe it or not and I remember Jimmy Ballymurphy coming up to me, Dad, and Christy Ring coming up to me, and talking to him. I mean, Dad would go, don't walk on there a while, because they wanted to talk about something privately or something like that. But that's the way it was. I'm, I remember Mike Regan standing there, and as you say, the person next to him, he'd be just going away, but they wouldn't have a paper in the hand or all. Like, you know what I mean? But they just probably wanted to get something off their chest or talk about something. I, 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 I often saw people standing with Michael uh, asking for a selfie. Like, there were Michael <laughs> and your dad and lots of the lads, celebrities, honestly, your own tone. But I, 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 my part of the part is that this man, Michael Regan, was a huge, huge person and huge present. But as I say, people don't so, see that as a commitment. They show sell echoes and uh, examiners. And I'd be honest, I would love somebody acknowledged uh, Michael Regan. I know he got to Cork on and, and well deserved. And I, there should be something small. And I made a suggestion there to Donald Key forever to And I think there might be something done about my father. But there certainly should be something with Michael Regan. They put a statue of an echo by, right? in the middle of the past, wherever it may be moved to know. Why can't they engrave their names on them? There was there's something on YouTube. Um, I think it's oh god, more any more She was um, yes, right. worked in RT. There's a lovely That's program right. on television years and years ago that, with that all the it. Echo Boys. And I think what's his name is in it as well. Who everybody knows. Remember Robot? 
Yeah, Who sell the echoes outside the, the Roche stores? Yeah, but, Jerry Daly. But, but see, people don't remember dog, Paul, is that, and Michael's family one. That was a room that was set up by the priest mm-hmm. automatically, with originally, right? Yeah. And as I said, that's what they used to get their bread and their soup. Some of these kids, some of these youngsters never at home for 14, 16 hours a day. They only went home to sleep and get up again. That's, and that's the harsh reality of it. And all I'm saying is that people don't realise the commitment to the customers that people, the echo buyers gave. Do you know what I mean? Rain, snow, sleet, right and that. And standing there in the middle of rain oh, for five, six, seven hours, like, you wouldn't see it today, like. And I think there's the John O'Shea's that used to stand outside the GPO. He was Dave now left. My younger brother's still doing up seeing the car busting the seat on my father's legs. But, like, they're going. There's not many of them left. You can count in one hand. I think there's only Dave outside uh, the GPO now, is it? No, my bro- my younger brother, Glenn, still oh, sells them outside St. Augustine's. He does the examiners in the morning. He does St. Augustine's. He does, yeah, Glenn. Right. He's, he's the youngest boy in the family. Like, you know what I mean? He, did, he wanted to do it. Like, so. But as I said, Dave has been there a long time. You know what I mean, but I think they're only two. They're only two. I mean, something else. Well, as you mentioned there a while ago that you'd like to, um, you know, have all their names engraved. And I know um, that Pam O'Regan from Gentlemen's Quarters in the, the city centre and Seville on Oliver Plunkett Street Lovely is, is now well. calling for a statue to be erected. Will you stay with us there, Donal? And I want to just go to Pam, um, a quick one with Pam before the break. Pam, good morning. Hello, hi Paul, how are you? How are you? Pam, you would have passed Michael O'Regan dozens of times every day walking from gentlemen's quarters over to Seville and back and yeah. what what do we need to do now to remember him I think you know it's funny thing the gentleman there um, just was on there Donal. before me actually Donald yeah um, you know what was going through my own head was really something like a memorial plaque or a wall of fame that all the echo boys all those people like that you've been talking about the robots and the Daves and the Michaels you know because they they are very special people and they were very special characters and me speaking as a person who came into Cork not being from Cork probably some of the first people that I would kind of got to know would be the people like the Echo Boys or Selling Examiners or you know the people on the street and those kind of people because they were fabulous characters and they were lovely warm friendly people and I'd kind of get chatting to them they'd get chatting to me and one word would lead to another and before you know it then they started to tell me things about Cork and tell me things about Cork people that I wouldn't have known you know so there's a there's a huge richness there and a huge history with them and I think that something like a plaque uh, or a you know a wall of fame or a memorial something like that that all their names can be put up on it you know and there's there's they're never forgotten you know never forgotten and is it up to the council to do it, or is it up to the Cork Business Association, or just both oh, come so together? There's a wee bit of everything, always. Uh, any, anything where people all come together is always a great idea, and it usually works better, doesn't it, you know? But certainly they should be honoured to Cork, Cork City, and so Cork City Council would definitely have to be involved in it, because um, there mm-hmm. should be great pride great pride in, in doing this, and in looking after, and memorialising these people, because they deserve it, you know? They're fantastic people. They're they're part of the the fabric of Corkism and Corkonians, you know. So it, they they're, they definitely they played a huge part in 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 life when they were alive and enriching Cork. And you know, even you know, poor Dave now down at the at the post office, I pass him now every day, and we'd have a chat and a laugh. And I mean, honest to God, these people they bring they bring light into your life. And they're, they're a ray of sunshine, you know. 
as well as, you know, Michael, as you say, he was a man, oh my God, I can remember, you know, stories he'd tell you, and he'd, you know, sometimes we'd be passing up maybe from lunch or something, Jim and myself, and we'd say, oh, we'll call to Michael, and we'll find out what's going on around the city, and he'd have all the news, and he'd tell you who was coming into Cork, and who was going out of Cork, and he was, he was a, he was a marvellous, he was a lovely, warm, jovial, You'd always end up with a laugh. We'd always buy the echo of him. And sometimes I might have already bought it, but Jim would still buy it off because you could not, you know. Michael O'Regan, the the real Lord. We had Jack Lynch, you know, the real Taoiseach. Michael O'Regan, the real Lord Mayor of Cork. Yeah, and he was was a man. He could have stood with, with, as the saying goes, he could have rubbed shoulders with with anybody, kings or, or queens, you know, because he had that, beauty in him and he had that you know wealth of knowledge and he could communicate on any level you he's know, actually there's a, there's actually a, a video on TikTok. It was taken by I think some uh, young Americans and a couple of Ger- German tourists. They 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 were fascinated by him and that they actually took a video and he's now part of their TikTok. So Michael, oh, not only was yeah. he from Ballyfehan, he's now a worldwide sensation. Yeah, yeah, isn't that fabulous? Isn't that absolutely amazing? You know. Well, Pam, so, I hope I hope the city council, our elected yeah. uh, councillors, yeah. and maybe yeah. members of the Corpus Association will get together, put their heads together and Absolutely. let's do it now let's have a plaque or a, a, a statue in place uh, a, a plaque with all of the echo boys names and details about names. them yeah, or a statue to michael yeah. o'regan but let's do it and let's have it in place for this time next year wouldn't it be fabulous wouldn't it be marvelous and wouldn't wouldn't he be so proud and i could see that twinkle in his eye and the smile on his face he'd love us absolutely love us wouldn't they um thanks for talking to us and donald no, cronin before that donald well, thanks very much indeed, but as I just said there, they, we've been going into a board of practice my father, I think I'm saying, it's down to the city council's point, yep. plain and simple, it's plain and simple, because the exam office were overwhelmingly generous when my father passed away, and still to this day, as Dolo Keith there and a couple of other reporters, ringing now and again to see how things going on, mm-hmm. and they've been so good, and I'm telling you, the exam office will not uh, shy away from this at all, they will put their hands in their pockets, whatever it be, there'll be a plaque, or a statue or anything that, because they do, they actually do appreciate what the likes of Michael O'Regan, Jerry Cronin, John O'Shea, Johnny Keller, Don Manny's, the Duggins, they appreciate they were their bread and butter from day one, long to long time ago. So, as I say, my sympathies again uh, to Michael O'Regan's family. Lovely words of Pam. No, I appreciate the call, Paul, but I have to go up, but I appreciate everything you do. And with the help of God, and I mean that, that it will something be done sooner rather than later. And I hope so. As I said, I said that to Pam, honestly, it, if the examiner office and everybody is willing to put their hands in their pockets, there is no reason why we shouldn't have something in place by this time next year. Don't look, go on away and I'll talk to you soon. Hey. Good luck. Listen, as we're on about people who passed away, um, I just want to uh, give mention as well to a number of people, uh, well-known people who died um, over the, over the Christmas period. Uh, the late councillor John Blair of Blair's Inn, also remembering Kenny Lee, uh, who of course uh, will be famous for uh, Spiders Nightclub on Hanover Street, and of course was was very instrumental in bringing live at the Marquee as well to Cork. And if you weren't barred from um, Spiders many years ago, it was kind of a badge of honour to be told by Kenny, "Go away, come back." come back, walk around the block, Paul, and come back to us again. But uh, sympathies to uh, his wife, Anne, and uh, lovely family. So also extending our sympathies to uh, Jack Lynch of the Cotton Ball, who sadly passed away as well over the Christmas period. Um, these are people 
who contributed so much, I think, to the fabric of Cork. They changed much of our city. These were people, they were doers, they were no-nonsense people. And uh, I think today the city owes a lot to the likes of Kenny Lee, John Blair and Jacqueline Shue, who, who helped to transform the face of our beautiful city. All right, hands up, those of you who overindulged this Christmas. I've got both hands up. Um, you know, there was turkey, there was turkey sandwiches, there was turkey curry and if I had my way I would have gone to Turkey but anyway we didn't but uh, I did get a present of a onesie and I ate so much over Christmas I went back to the shop and asked for a twosie so that'll tell you but anyway a man who might help me to shed those pounds uh, Tony Martin performance and co-founder of Limbo Revolution Tony good morning good morning Paul how are you happy I'm to be here to you I've s- I actually sound and feel slimmer already talking to you Tony what are you going to do for everyone <laughs> who pigged out over Christmas um, I'm probably going to go against the grain here and, and tell everybody, uh, get away from the New Year's resolution thing uh, and, and and start at something actionable and, and take a different approach to the New Year this year in terms of looking after yourself and, and doing the things you need to do to get into shape. Uh, and that's basically my starting point. Like every single year, every single person starts off at the start of the year. They're all going to do their dieting at the start of the year. They're all full of good intentions. And these things are always designed so that, you know, you're going to do something for a little period of time and then it's going to end and then it's all going to be wonderful. And then you're going to get on with it. And every single year, the testament to that is that you keep starting every single year and nothing changes. So unless you're going to do it slightly different this year. You're going to be back at square one again, another couple of weeks, another couple of weeks, another couple of weeks, just perpetuating that overweight state. Tony, I know you're uh, the co-founder of Limbo Revolution, and uh, I mean, it, it seems to be working with people. But look, and people try so many diets, but isn't it as simple as this? And look, here I'm, t- you know, I should practice what I preach, but isn't it simple? Eat less, move more. Simple as that. No, it, 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 it's not as simple as that. I mean, it's eating. What does eating mean? And that's where people get, you know, messed up in terms of the direction that they need to take and the direction that they don't understand taking. They don't know the impact of, of food in, on their systems. They don't know the impact of eating things at different rates and what that does to the metabolism and how the metabolism is very, very good at hanging on to excess calories. And it's not been given a chance to work to get the energy out of their food and um, it, it just ends up at the overweight state due to the massive confusion that's out there around the whole thing of overweightedness around the um, the idea that you, you've got to engage in the diet and exercise program to get into shape and 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 that's the thing that everybody fails on because nobody has has a glimmer of what's going on you, you start the, the latest fad diet everybody looks at it understands it in as much as they can and you know they pop into this little bubble it's normally prescriptive for a length of time and then they pop out and, you know, they're, they're none the wiser as, as to how they got to where, to where they were at. So they've got nothing to fashion, you know, how to, how to live, you know, that healthful lifestyle from. Tony, it was a fairly lengthy uh, break this year, uh, Christmas. So on average, you know, if people, you know, let their guard down, on average, what have we gained weight-wise, an average person? The, the, the thing about it is, and, and we don't seem to look at this or we don't seem to give any credit to ourselves as human beings, like we were, we've evolved from a situation where we never knew where our next meal was coming from. 
So we 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 always exist in in uh, kind of metabolically in in a kind of a food anxiety state. We never know where the next meal is coming from. As a consequence of that, our bodies are incredibly good at storing. Now we've moved on so far from subsistence existence that we have excess energy available to us all the time. So we're very very good at hoovering up all those excesses and storing them within our systems. What we're not very good at realizing is that we've got to create the conditions to allow us to use that excess. And with all the processed food that we've been eating and all the sugar and all the rubbish that we've been eating diet-wise over Christmas, we end up storing a lot. The figures out there in terms of what people put on they're varied and they don't really mean a whole lot but over the average of a christmas anybody can put on anywhere from a half stone to a stone and that's excessive energy that the body hasn't used stored within the system and the inability to use it and to repatriate and get back in shape is caused by the type of food that we've been eating and this is where we've developed um, the whole concept of limbo from in 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 letting you actually see how the body works in relation to how it reacts to what you're putting it in into your system. Can I ask and you Tony, can I ask you you say to just say a half a stone to a stone, okay? Say for the month of January somebody packs up the booze and they walk 30 minutes every day. Will they lose that half a stone or stone in the month? They should lose that and more. And and what I would tell people in, instead of you know going on the prescriptive diet or, or going hammer and tongs at something that you're not going to be able to sustain, do something that's sustainable. The first piece of advice I've done and, and what we've seen from the research that we're doing with what's coming back from what we've developed is that we don't seem to handle food carbohydrate-wise very well in the evening. Our bodies systemically don't handle it very well. And that's the time of the evening that everybody, you know, motors around and, and eats around and snacks around. So the first thing I would say to anybody and keeping it nice and simple would be take a cut off time, say six o'clock in the evening, brush your teeth after your last meal and do not eat again till breakfast the next day. And let your appetite get a chance to regulate the energy system and all the energy that you've taken in and allow the normal hunger and satiation that eating excessively masks, allow that to kick back in again, allow the body's system to regulate itself. So a fasted period before you go to bed in the evening is a massive help in that. Now, if you did only just that, that without really subscribing to much of a diet, but just get engaged with a habit, start the habit that you can lay everything out against, then the way the, the, the body goes in terms of doing other stuff to add on to that habit is immense. You start choosing a little bit more conscientiously the foods that you're eating. You start getting a little bit more interested. You start doing a little bit more exercise instead of taking the lift someplace. You know, you, you take a couple of more steps. <clears throat> you might park a little bit further from, say, work, walk in. You might get off a bus stop or two earlier and walk. It doesn't have to be much. But it's got to be something that you can sustain and manage, not just until you get rid of the weight, but on an ongoing basis so that you keep the weight off keep and it you, off. you create yeah, that yeah. environment. Are we, are, we, um, are we, as they say, eating ourselves into the graves? Without a shadow of a doubt, like uh, generationally, we're probably the first generation. These babies that are being born within the last 10 years are probably the first generation that are not going to outlive their parents. The obesity epidemic is absolutely off the Richter scale. It's probably 
the real, real pandemic that that's coming down the line. It's it's a train crash that's that's going to have us on our knees um, economically because we're not going to be able to afford. The, the care that's needed uh, to look after people who have all the, the, the chronic diseases in relation to food. Um, so a lot of it is simple, look, educate yourself, you know, make yourself aware of what you're eating. It's, it's simple really, is it? If you, if, you, if, you, if you take time, if you're interested in yourself. Like, stop, stop looking at the quick fix. Stop looking at the end result because it, it, it means that you're blindly going to it. Start taking step by step, looking at what's happening and, and making choices on a daily basis that allow you to control the reaction to your food. It's all about the food that you decide to eat. The low nutrient food, it's, it's terrible on our systems because there's, there's no nutrition in the food. It's just energy, like say sugar, has nothing in it except energy. And the body finds it very, very hard to manage that because we, we peak our blood glucose, it, it crashes, we have no um, <coughs> satiation, hunger complex. All the systems that, are nor- that normally our, our body uses to balance out what we eat, what we expend, they're all turned off by the type of food that we're eating. Tony, and then I, 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 this- I, go on, sorry. At this time of the year, you've got everybody starting off. Yeah, you've got yeah. your operation transformations, which which really aren't really very very helpful. You know, it's it's the step by step processes of understanding what's going on. That's where people need to be. Tony, I want you to give me three simple examples. Okay, keep this very very basic, please, if you will. What should somebody have for breakfast? I, you, you remember now, you're talking here to me. Say, fella, you know, I have a body like a temple, Balan Temple. But tell me, what should I have for breakfast? Again, I, I, I'll get away from that prescriptive stuff. And what I will say is if you cut your, your last meal at six o'clock in the evening and brush your teeth, there's a big gap between your last meal and then getting up in the morning. What you will find is that you're not going to be ravenously hungry, hungry in the morning because the appetite controls this, itself a small little bit. I would choose from whole foods. That's nutritionally dense foods that are as, 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 as little altered as possible from what they come in the natural state to, to what you're putting into your body as. Because then the body can handle it, it can digest it a, a lot better. The nutrients that are required for the body to handle it are in the food. So any base from whole food, I would advise people to take the breakfast from. Okay. On a midday meal, I, I would do the same thing. I'd keep it as whole as possible, as far removed from processing as possible. I'm not demonizing any food because that's wrong. Because if you demonize food and people say, I can't go at it, invariably, they want to go at it. You're creating a desire for something. And then in the evening time, I'd have a nutritious meal in the evening around good, wholesome, nutritious food. Prescriptively, staying away from food and saying you can't eat it, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Listen, Tony, thanks for talking to us. Stay well. And I know um, Limbo Revolution is uh, doing wonders for people at the moment. And if you're interested in uh, hearing more about Tony's website, it's on our Twitter. You can uh, click on there to our Twitter, but his um, website is LimboRevolution.com. Tony Martin, thanks for talking to us and uh, stay healthy. Thank you very much, Paul. Happy New Year to you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today.
If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Bye-bye. Can we just talk? Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. And good morning, this is Paul Byrne in for PJ and we're into the final hour of The Opinion Line. Uh, a brand new year in Cork's 96FM. The next big giveaway is coming soon. Live free in 23. If you want to do so, well then stay listening to win a year to remember only on Cork's 96 FM. Stay tuned for further details to win those great prizes on the way. Now, many of us were treated to uh, presents over the Christmas. Many of us bought Christmas presents for others. And unfortunately, some people had their belongings stolen because Christmas time, believe it or believe it not, criminals, many of them, just do not rest and in fact they see it as an opportunity to um, you know, work their evil ways and uh, I was looking at a tweet it says, um, so we're in a pretty bad way to start 2023 it seems our office was broken into over the new years and some equipment stolen, our whole floor was hit and it's been a nightmare not just for us at Deep Red but also for other companies too the materials were taken have uh, been quite work quite expensive and mean a lot to us. Uh, to tell us a little bit more about what happened at Deep Red Productions over Christmas, we're joined on the line now by the film producer, Steve. Steve, good morning. Good morning, Paul. Um, not a great way to start. You had many, many expensive items uh, stolen. What? When did it happen? Um, it would have happened New Year's Eve because uh, Chris, who would be an epic production to share an office with, um, he would have been working New Year's Eve until about 20 past 6, I think he went home. And he came in New Year's Day at around noon um, to find that the, the offices had been broken into. And um, camera gear stolen, lenses stolen, all that kind of stuff. Um, Can you just move from, around there? From both of our companies. Okay. You're, you're based in uh, Thompson House in McCurtain Street? Correct. Uh, do you know how they got in? Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, no, I mean, the place has been up kind of every day looking at it. I, I'm sure they have um, that they go through CCTV footage and that, um, of the surrounding area, I'm sure, as well as um, the CCTV in the buildings and that, um, to try and get a, a kind of more of a timeline. No idea how they got in. Um, it, like, I, I can't see how they would have gone in the front door and side mm-hmm. door, so they must have, um, I think, or not the police. I mean, they're t- their job and they'll come up with it, you know, whether 
Sorry, can you can you just move around, Steve? That line is pretty bad there. Just just uh, okay. try out the window there. I'll do that. I'll do that. Um, no, I was saying. Um, so whether they were able to come in a window or whether they were coming through, you know, a, a back door or a different entrance or something, maybe. Um, How does it make you feel to know that somebody was in there? I remember talking to a guy whose house was broken into. He had just dropped his wife to mass and he came back a half an hour later and his house had been done over and everything was uh, taken. He said he felt they were, he described them as like rats crawling around his house. How, how, do, how do you feel about people, strangers in your property? <coughs> yeah, I mean, it was, um, yeah, it was a strange feeling. You're kind of in shock for the most part to begin with. Um, because you're just thinking, like, how how could this have, you know, happened or, or that? Because we've been, you know, going for a number of years, and you know, Epic have been going longer than us, and their have been their media have been going longer as well, um, and none of them have ever had anything like this happen. So yeah, it is an initial shock, and then it's it's kind of um, yeah, just kind of thinking about like how long were they in there? You know, when did they come in? When did they leave? All that, you know. Is there anything else you could have done, kind of racing through your head? Um, I yeah, know you, 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 had, you had a list of um, equipment, like yeah. Panasonic camcorder. There was uh, a number of lenses stolen. Um, a number of lenses, yeah. Can you Two put a value, Can you put a value on the stuff? Um, if we were to combine it with what was taken from Epic, I would I would imagine you're looking at anywhere from probably fifteen to eighteen thousand euro. Oh Jesus. Um, so it's not a small amount of money. And he insured? Um, we wouldn't be for, for theft that way, um, on our stuff anyway. So uh, we'd have our public liability and we'd have insurance for if it got damaged while we were out filming. Um, How can you pick yourselves up uh, after a loss of uh, such a magnitude? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's kind of what we're wondering. Now, we've had lots of offers of people wanting to set up GoFundMe's for us and that, and that's, you know, maybe something to think about down the line. Now, the, I suppose we've been kind of good to different charities and that over the years, and there's been a lot of great people have gotten in touch to kind of help us out in sharing the information, as well as that the film community in Cork is quite together, and a lot of other companies, film companies, have been very generous and offered, at least in the short time term, that when we need to film something, that we can have a loan of equipment from them and that, so um, at least in the short term, that'll help. Can I ask you, I mean, would you believe you were targeted specifically? Because that is... It, it, have you I been think, asking yourself that? Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes you're like, is it, a, a, you know, just a, a chance happening? But it seems uh, very strange. I know you were up there doing a piece with us before Spook Screen. It's not, you know, it's not a place you can see from the street. It's not a place... You can even look in a window and see. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, t- to me, I feel like possibly it was a place that was targeted um, just because it's it's not something people would even know is there. Mm-hmm. The equipment that's stolen, I mean, um, have you photographs of it that you can put up on your website or your Twitter account or if people, you know, Ye- maybe they're going into yeah. shops? <laughs> look, this equipment yeah. is going to be put on the market for sale, basically, <laughs> at the end of the day, I think, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and I I know Chris over at, at Epic has put up has put up some of those photographs. So if they, people check out their Facebook page and that, they'll see some of the images. And we've been in touch with the, you know, the secondhand stores and all that kind of place, and just giving them a list of stuff as well, so that they're on keeping an eye out. Um, as well as that, because of the filmmaking community around Ireland, 
the enlisted equipment is also being shared. You know, Leash, Donegal, Dublin, Galway, Mayo's like like different filmmakers around the country have also and kind of shared the stuff around. All right. Well, look, uh, Steve, thanks for taking the call and unfortunately a, a bad start to the new year, but hopefully there will be start, lights, start. camera action and um, a, a good result at the end of the day. Hopefully there's a, a happy ending to this uh, story and, and, and what you're trying to produce in this one. But um, again, can I give you a website there that people might be able to check out and have a look at the, the, the items that were stolen or is it on your Twitter? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, if they like our own website, would be deepred.ie, but we wouldn't have our equipment generally listed on that. But yeah, if they want to find us on Facebook or Twitter, they you know they'll get a list of stuff there. All right, okay, Steve, thanks for taking the cause, a call <coughs> and um, continue making those movies. Thank you very much indeed. We will, of course, Paul. Thanks so much. Thanks a million. I want to go from McCartan Street to Ballyvornia in West Cork, where unfortunately, um, there was a story of cattle rustling. Marie, good morning. Uh, good morning, how are you? How are you doing? Marie, uh, I, I know for the likes of the city slickers like me, we don't hear about cattle rustling that often, but um, you had half a herd stolen. It sounds um, like something you'd hear on a, on, a, on a western, really, a cattle rustling. It, it really does. Now, when we're talking about half a herd, we're specifically focused on the bull. So it, it wasn't, in, in fact, a half a herd, but it, it definitely felt like that. So our bull would be our breeding bull. So that bull would be um, used to produce all our cats. So for that to be stolen, and he was a valuable animal, it, it, it is, it's heartbreaking really, you know. I suppose. When, like did, this, saying, when did this happen? And, and I mean, tell us a little bit about the, the yeah. bull. I mean, I, I know I've spoken to farmers over the years, and I, I, I never, but I've learned that you do become to, you do come to love those cattle, the sheep, the Absolutely. pigs. They're part of the family, aren't they? A hundred percent. Like, this happened the morning of Christmas Eve. Um, so Dad would check his animals every single day, sometimes twice, three times a day. They'd be on an outside farm, so they'd be about five miles away from the house, and they were in the shed. Um, and in the middle of the night, it, it is known that, that people came. Now, no one was seen in the yard, but we have CCTV and dash cam footage of a car a dark colored jeep and a triaxle trailer traveling in the area at after two o'clock in the morning, which would be very unusual. And like you were saying, these animals, you do become very close to. I mean, we'd have, we wouldn't buy in cattle really, except maybe the bull every, whenever we, we need one. But all of our animals would be reared on the farm from when they're born and they'd be kept. So it's, I suppose it's very, it's, it's very personal, you know, yeah, I mean, they, they stole your bull, but it's a personal attack on you. A hundred percent. Not only is it on us, but it's an attack on the community because, like, it's amazing when you think about it. Not only were they watching us, but they were watching everyone in that area. And the, to steal a bull, okay? Yes. It doesn't take a genius to work out that this is somebody who knows the type of animal they're dealing with. Absolutely. They know cattle. And not only do they do they know cattle, but they have to have good understanding of how to handle cattle. This isn't someone who would just come in the randomly and say, okay, we'll, we'll take these ones. This is someone who, who would have the experience of handling cattle. I mean, like I was saying, those cattle back in the sheds, they took seven animals. But except for the bull, none of them had ever been loaded into a trailer. Mm-hmm. You know, they were born out on that farm and that, you know, they'd be moved around. If they'd be moved, they'd be walked. 
you know. And tell me, like, you know, a dog or a cat or a dog, whatever, they, they're the microchip. Are, are these animals, the bull and the, the cattle, had they got the ear tags? They have ear tags, oh yes, but that's... Does that mean anything? It doesn't, to yeah. be quite honest. Um, I suppose, look, the, the reality is they can take those animals, cut the ear tags off, and replace them with ear tags. You know, from animals that perhaps have died, that haven't been registered as dead. And this is something else that's going straight into the food chain. Like, we're talking about Ireland, we're supposed to be traceable, and here we are with untraceable meat. I mean, you don't know, like, one of the rules is you cannot send animals who've had antibiotics to to be slaughtered for meat. So do you, and, be, do, do you believe that these were stolen, not like, to be sold on or to be, to, to be slaughtered? We don't know. There is both possibilities. I mean, the reality is the animals they took, unlikely that they would be slaughtered, especially a bull, right? Mm-hmm. And just the worth of, of the bull himself. However, those animals could be sent to slaughter as a way of getting rid of them if there's pressure on. And if those cattle were sent to slaughter, I mean, is there a danger right now that there is infected meat gone into our food chain? There is a possibility, of course. I was just reading in the Farmer's Journal there. In the past 12 months, there has been, and they're only using very, very small numbers, they're saying there is uh, €600,000 worth of cattle missing or stolen in Ireland in the past 12 months. It's becoming a big industry, isn't it? Cattle rustling. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just... It's, it's like I said, it's, it's more than an attack on just us. You hear it so often now, it's frightening. You know, and even the story they're saying about missing cattle, they're saying that only a very small percentage of farmers report their cattle as stolen. They report them as missing to the department. Right? And why, why is that? Because they're not sure. A lot These animals could be stolen out of fields. And farmers might spend four or five days searching for the animals. And they can't be certain where they have gone. Like, it's, it's the amount of cattle being reported missing is higher than ever. So the reality is, some of those might be stolen. And people aren't reporting it because they feel like it's too late. They've been missing a week. We can't find them. You know? So I, I do think, I do think some of it is, it, I think it's bigger and more prevalent than we realise. Is there anyone out there that you think might have had a grudge against you and the family that they said? No, I, I, I honestly don't. I really, really don't. I just, I mean, Dad would be a quiet man. He's he's lived in that community his whole life. You know, he he goes out once a week, Saturday night for one pint. I mean, his whole life, how he has lived farming, mm-hmm. and now we have been extremely lucky. And I really, really want to thank all of the people in the area who got behind us. I mean, the amount of people out asking questions, asking for CCTV, looking through their CCTV, looking through Dashcam, uh, that's how we were able to identify them first, was really the kindness and the generosity of the people in the community. I know the guards uh, under the superintendent uh, Joe Moore in McCroom, I know, I know they're, they're looking into this case and, uh, they're, you know, they, they've been issuing uh, press releases to the media in relation to the, the cattle rustling. Is there a possibility of giving us a value of what you've lost, uh, the livestock? Value-wise? Yeah, uh, we would say between ten and 15,000 immediate loss. Mm-hmm. But you also have to consider 
the loss of, for example, cats that we won't have, as well as that we have to replace every single one of those animals. And if they're stolen, are you insured against for theft against these? We would be insured, yes. I know. I know, it's um, no consolation. I know, I know. It's no consolation. And like I said, it's it's the connection you have to those animals. You read, like... Like you said, it, it is like they're part of the family and you know your animals and you, like, we're very lucky that we have photographs of the animals. Like, my, my younger sister, she, she loves them and she's taken photographs, I'd say, of everything on the farm multiple times. You know, it is that personal connection. And tell me a little bit about on this, um, the bull. How old was he? Had he a name? He, he was Reggie, the bull. How <laughs> <laughs> did you uh, come up with the name Reggie? Um, believe it or not, because he's a, he's a pedigree bull. No, he came with the name. He was Reginald, was his official name. But, uh, Very upish name Reggie. for a bull, Reginald, you had to shorten yeah, that. <laughs> that's it, exactly, so he's Reggie. And how um, old was he? He would have been, um, we got him when he was about two years old and we've had him for three years. So we probably would have had him another two or three years. Was he good? You know. Was he good? Was he good at his job? Excellent, excellent <laughs> at his job. You know, excellent at his job. We were very lucky. He was the calves were easy calving, um, and they put on, um, I suppose, muscle mass very easily. I, I think it was your nephew or um, your brother maybe have been in touch with me as well through Instagram uh, or prior to Christmas in relation to this. And But what what I'm asking is, can we get photographs of these animals up on your Instagram or, or can people yeah, see them? Yeah, so I have them up on Facebook. Um, we have them sent to any newspapers, any outlet that would put them up. Absolutely, we've them sent on. Um, and one of the cows actually had a very distinctive horn which would be quite unusual. Um, she actually would have belonged to our granduncle before he died. Um, so she she would like she would have been a ten year old cow nearly, but it, it would have been very unusual to see cows with horns nowadays. And we have pictures; they're up on Facebook, they're up on Instagram. Um, so absolutely, and if you see and what's, any, what's, your, what's your Facebook um, the name? It's uh, under Maura Corkery. Okay. And we'll see Reggie and, and, and some of the others. All yep, right. All right. Uh, can I ask you finally and briefly, uh, realistically, will you get them back? No. Absolutely not. The, the, like, we, we have faced that reality at this point. It's, we'd like to catch people that are doing it. Yeah. To okay. stop them doing it to other people. And like I said... So that's why you're coming on. I said, okay, t- t- advising absolutely. other farmers. Tighten security. Absolutely. Titan security, keep an eye out for each other. Like I said, these people, they were watching everyone. Like, they had it timed. There's a milk lorry travels in the area. They had it timed to come in between the milk lorry and people travelling for work. Mm-hmm. So, like, they've been observing the entire area. You know, they've been watching everyone. It's frightening when you think of it that way. Okay, look, if anybody wants to check Marie Corkery, she's on Facebook. There's pictures of the bull Reggie and uh, the cattle that were stolen. Uh, possibility that Reggie is still out there. Um, but look, Marie, thanks for taking the call. Hopefully next time we'll talk, you might be under better circumstances. But uh, thank you for 
ta- talking to us and I think it's um, it's it's good to give advice to other farmers to, to tighten up and keep an eye on things that, that are going on around the farmyard. Marie, thanks for talking to us. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Good luck. Uh, a quick one before the ad break. Uh, Burr, she says she agrees with Paul earlier this morning. Hit criminals in the pocket, put them in orange suits, get them sweeping the roads, not lock them up with three meals a day and TV sets, etc., etc. Burr, you're very harsh. Aren't I, Paul? Do you know what I am, Paul? I am a mum. I'm a grandmother. I'm not a politician. I've nothing to do with any parties whatsoever. But I would like to think I'm a logical person. And if your son or daughter committed a crime, would you like to see them in an orange suit? Uh, Paul, I tell you what. I think I should have been put in Mountjoy probably when mine were younger. Me, myself. Because I always said to my children, you do something wrong, I'm your mum. I will break her legs, put you in a wheelchair for six months. You can think about it. You want to do it again? What will mum do? You see, there's no deterrent there. Like, my heart goes out to the guards, right? I think the guards are locked up in their own handcuffs. Mm -hmm. They go out, they do everything in this broken justice system to bring, you know, normality or whatever, and they're just laughed. When I was younger, Paul, if I'd seen a guard, I'd go home. I wouldn't be after doing nothing wrong. Yeah, it's, a, I, it's, it's like I often said, it's like um, the best uh, laxative. See a man with a yellow jacket. Years and years ago, I said that. And it's total respect where there's no respect now, Paul. And why? You give out to a child, right? I'm going to ring a helpline yeah. or something. And someone will come to your door. You give out to your child or blah, blah, blah. Like the system is totally broken. Now, they but how can we fix it? How can we fix it? We can give a, we can, number one, we can give parents back the responsibility of looking after their children. And if your son or your daughter or your niece or your grandchild or anything does anything wrong, you're responsible. You, as a mum or a dad, you know, you put these children into the world, no. You don't set them out to do anything wrong. But like when it does, put your hand up and say, it's unacceptable. Whatever proper punishment is there for you. I mean, putting them to jail. Like, what, what standard is that for a teenager? Yeah, I know we, we often hear the words, uh, prison is a, a holiday camp and, you know... No, bar it being a holiday camp and everything, you know, when they come out, they just think that they are definitely untouchable. Put them in kind of farms, put them in with a load of you-know-what, get them to shovel it for eight hours a day and say, is this what you want to do with for the rest of your life? <coughs> You, you you remember the movies where the chain gangs were in America, Fantastic. you know, digging the roads. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Get them to sweep out every corner of the road. You know, get them, like, you know, being, like, I, touch wood, I don't know of anyone in prison or I've never been near prison or nothing. But you see, they they just laugh at it now. Like, they, 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 the youngsters of today know the system the broken system, inside out, upside down, and they will tell a guard under section something I am quite entitled to be here. And I think the guards have it a lot more difficult too ever since uh, social media because they're filming the guards now going to arrest someone and they say, guards, I'm filming you, I know. Their hands are tied, as you said, in their own handcuffs. In their own handcuffs. Well, like, where's the justice there? 
you know, the whole lot has to start. And, I mean, free legal aid, you know, I mean, that's another thing that, to me, is a big, big joke. Do you have anybody in um, on Garda Shekhana? Well, I would, I would, I would have um, my nephew's wife is there. No, she's in Dublin. You know, but we like we never talk about anything like this. Or I have a friend or a friend who knows mm-hmm. someone. Mm-hmm. But you know, I mean, I've seen it with my own eyes. You know, giving them the fingers and like that is it's just oh, in, with me, Paul, I'd say I'd break your fingers. You know, there's nothing to deter these people. But why are we electing people then year after year, every four or five years, whatever the case may be? Um, it, it's it's not changing. Is anything happening? If there isn't, but that's the whole point. Where do they start? Everyone needs to start on a clean sheet. Look, if you don't have the biggest deterrent ever, it's going to keep continuing. Now, the population has gone crazy. You know, it's been a horrible couple of weeks on poor families, on every side of the fence. How do you feel about walking in town yourself, whether it be day or night time? Well, I wouldn't like that, no. Um, I wouldn't mind, Paul, because, you know, I'm, how can I put it? I'd like to think my, like, I just go in. But I think that, you know... Do you feel safe? That's what I'm asking you. Would I feel safe? I would feel safe, Paul, because I <coughs> would make sure that I'd be able to get out of it quickly. You see, this is it. It's when everyone comes out on the street and one looks at someone and that's it. And then you have these people that go out, they don't drink, they don't drink, they don't do drugs, they don't do anything, but they go out for a vice spot. You know that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not for a good night. It's going to, who can we hammer tonight? And these bullies that kick anyone in the head, you know, like, like, if you want to fight, do 50-50. Mm-hmm. A decent. You know, but they're just going beyond it, Paul, and there's no deterrent there for them. I have interviewed families <clears throat> where their loved ones, and I filmed them, unfortunately, in hospital, uh, where they're just brain damaged um, from kicks to the head, being stamped on the head, and their families will never, ever give up hope that they hope that their loved one will come back to them someday but the chances of that happening are very very slim but in two or three particular cases the attackers they got off very very lightly but why is that Paul? well it's it's because of the legislation the judge's hands you said guards are their hands are in handcuffs the judge's hands are tied at times again because the the legislation isn't there if you go and look at any of the the legal diaries or whatever like you'll see for crime A you can only get such and such so it, it it takes tougher legislation. That's it. The whole system needs to be changed. The and is the, is the political will there to do that? Are, are politicians strong enough? Are they fearful? Well, they'll have to be because do they have to wait for it to come to their own door, Paul? No, they shouldn't. You know, they should, they should look at it as a broader spectrum for everyone or anyone that comes into our country to be safe as much as possible. No, we will never get rid of drugs, sex, rock and roll, you know what I mean? But I mean, you know, like, it's just the younger generation, they are just so bold, Paul. All right. Very, very bold. So I think, as you say, if we may, if our voices can be heard strong enough, lads, government, you're getting paid well for this. 
you know All right. rock on and do something solid for the new year Burr, and thanks, many years to come thanks for taking the call and um, I suppose you have a wooden spoon at home to well, I do. Uh, my moat is my wooden spoon. <laughs> I have no problem in letting my children, my grandchildren know <clears throat> what I personally would do for them to have a life. What's your surname, Burr? Murphy, darling. Burr Murphy, Hitler in the knickers. Thanks oh, for talking to us. Come here. And it, come here. Let me tell you, Paul, at my age, no love. It's a Bridget Jones mickery. Good luck. God bless. God bless. Happy New Year. And this is Paul Byrne in for PJ Coogan this morning. Now, we were talking earlier about the late Michael O'Regan, the Echo Boy who passed away over the Christmas. His sister-in-law, Teresa, was back on. She just wants to say thank you to all the people of Cork who looked after Michael over the years and to all the people who expressed sorrow and condolences to the family. It means an awful lot to us and it will not be forgotten. And Teresa and Sean, Michael O'Regan will not be forgotten by the people of Cork either. Now, cooking uh, a turkey or a duck or the spiced beef over Christmas, uh, cooking for a family on Christmas Day, uh, a lot of effort goes into it. And um, I know of one young uh, lady, along with uh, some of her friends, had to cook up and prepare and deliver over 700 Christmas dinners and desserts. Sharon, good morning. Oh, I'm laughing here to myself, Paul Cook. I only have a kitchen now because I came with my house, I'm afraid. Someone else did the cooking. We had Brook Foods, who are a business here in the city. Kieran Cannon has been doing this for us for the last three years. And um, he's been helping us really since before COVID. So um, it's, it's just we work with um, a lot of the schools in the city. And we ask them, you know, if there are people we can help. I suppose it, there's a lot of pressure on people too, kind of, on the day, you know... Um, and there could be illness in the family or there could be, you know, just too many and lots of people don't like maybe cooking the big the big meal. It's not for everybody. You exactly. Know, so. But Sharon, so, you're one of the coordinators at Feed Cork who yeah. do tremendous work. You're a volunteer. You're out there looking after people seven days a week, uh, 365 days of the year. These are people who are really finding it tough, who are just simply can't put bread and butter on the table. Sharon, how bad was it this year? You had seven hundred um, meals. We, we actually we had like we we've done six hundred for the last two years at Christmas, and we what we've done is we've delivered it. Um, and I suppose it's not that like you know um, you know there could be anything I suppose going on in people's homes. Like again, there could be illness there. There could be lots of things going on, and it's a challenge for some people. So um, so we find just by providing that we we send it down on Christmas Eve to the various. The various houses delivered to their door, and it's done through them, through the schools. Like such, so we, we work with the homeschool liaison because there's obviously people who would never come in or will never reach out for help, and that's okay too. But they know where the need is, and I suppose they felt, um, you know, the names that they gave us, they felt that those people really would appreciate the help on that day. And like I say, Kieran, Kieran and Brooke Fuzer, Kieran Cannon, he's just been amazing. We met him through. You know, when COVID happened, I actually rang him up. Somebody gave me his number and I thought he was looking for food. It was hilarious. Like, but he has, um, you know, they, he has a great team there below in um, Parky Keeve. And I think they're in the City Hall and the County Hall. He has kitchens there as well. And the guys there are just brilliant because they, they supply us with food all year round for a different project. For It's a project called After School Fuel where we mm-hmm. deliver food at the weekend to, um, to some families. How bad are you things know? out there at the moment, uh, Sharon? I think really tough because we have people coming into us now that would never have seen before. You know what I mean? It's a complete different, um, 
like you have people who are working coming in you know what I mean and I think then the, the fear even before Christmas people were afraid to turn on heating and it just you know something even putting a turkey in the oven for that many hours I'd say was just a stress to people so um, and you know I suppose a lot of the bills haven't hit yet you know a lot of people would have massive bills there in January I was just going to say do you foresee that your uh, yeah, I was just going to say do you foresee that your services there'll be extra demand for, for, for your services yeah I mean we, we actually we actually ask people to book in a lot of the time because you know we're we're small I suppose you know we only open we open on Wednesday and Thursday for a couple of hours each day um, a lot of our prep and like we, there's about 400 it takes about 400 hours and 35 volunteers for us to open for four hours. Do you know what I mean? Like, we do other stuff besides that, but that would be the main part of what we do. And, yeah, we definitely, I would definitely see it increasing even this morning. I know there, we, we have two phones, two phone lines, and they're absolutely flooded with messages. And, again, we can only do so much, you know? So, I Sharon, what do, you, say, what do you say to people who might say nobody can go hungry in this day and age because you know they're on social welfare or they're earning uh, a crust but you know yet they have to turn to charities uh, some people find it very hard to believe that others have to put their hand out for help well I suppose Paul talk is cheap and we don't know what's going on in anyone's home there could be addiction there could be massive debt that they're trying to clear up. I mean, people, even since COVID, people would be in massive debt. There's massive personal debt out there. You know what I mean? So, and who are we to judge? I mean, if we have it, we're going to give it out the same as any anybody else, you know? So, I like, I do see, and I do know that people are hungry. I do know people are hungry, you know? And I know there's a lot of people who won't come to us, and we might... We, we might have to work a different angle to get the food to them, if you know what I mean. You know, it might be through a friend of a friend, you know, that kind of way. I know you do so, your best um, to, to, to feed all, but are there children yeah. going to school hungry? Um, I would hope not. I would hope not. You know, I know there's a lot of stuff kind of going on in the schools where they'd have, um, where they'd have, we'd say, breakfast Breakfast and clubs, yeah. Yeah, but like, I suppose that's where this project we have called the After School Fuel, that's where that would kick in that for whatever reason if there could be illness or anything going on in the home there for the weekend so at least you know to the homes that we're delivering to there is food there for the kids there's a hot meal that comes from uh, book foods for Friday Saturday Sunday as well as other snacks and drinks you know so you know we would hope that that is the case but at the end of the day sure look all we can all do is do our best and just be mindful I suppose you know As a human being what does it do to you inside as a person when you see others who are less well off and, and they're putting their hand out and they're they're there with their cap in hand as it were what does it do to um, you personally well I suppose like I'm 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 at it five years now and I suppose the first year I think I probably spent most of my time crying you know every time you looked at me I was crying because you, you can't fix it all you know but I think if you can make a difference even to one person in the day and it's not even about that like I suppose it's very important to us that when people come in here it's a very welcoming atmosphere and we would always, you know, let them know our names, like, you know, I'm Sharon. And, you know, if we're if they're setting up an appointment, we'd always say, yeah, I'll be here when you come in. So I'll see you then. Or if I'm not there, Emma will be there, or Catherine, Rachel, whoever. So they have it. They have um, a person, if you know what I mean. We also have a cafe, and the cafe is complimentary. So a lot of the time, people would come in, sit down, have a coffee. It's set up then, like, we have it set up now, like a food hall. Mm-hmm. So especially we feel when people have their kids with them it's a cashless shop so they choose what they want we have sort of a daily counter on Wednesday and Thursday where we'd have 
frozen and fresh veg and yogurt, milk, that kind of stuff. And then we'll have the non-perishables on the other side. But it's set up, I mean, even if you go into the social media page there, it's like the lads, they just, they take such pride in their work as well. And it's volunteer run, you know, we're volunteer run. I know Feed Cork, there, you're there at the uh, near um, Connolly Hall. Yeah, we're at give, the back us, of it. give us your uh, Facebook page if somebody wants. Do you, do you need Feed donations? Cork, do you know something now? Like, we're not funded by anybody, so we depend totally on financial donations. And I suppose, like, that's now the after school fuel project. It is really in its infancy. We can't grow that without funding. Um, so that's something we're going to try and look at now this year. Um, how can we grow it? Because we know the demand is there. And the thing is, at least you say when the schools are off, you know, the breakfast clubs and stuff don't, obviously, they're not going on. But at least just people are involved with the after-school fuel programme. That food goes out 52 weeks of the year. You know what I mean? We don't stop when the kids are on holidays or we don't stop in the summer. You know, that kind of way. Very good. So, um, so we're across social media, so... Feel free to, to even, you know, if you can't donate, you know, just share the page even. Um, and that's that Feed, feed Cork on Facebook. That's your th- yeah, Feed Cork. Feed Cork on, on Instagram and on Facebook. And we have a, a website as well. So, um, and we have two, there's two phone numbers there if anybody needs to find out any more information. Yeah. And, and, and like, again, we do our best, you know. We might get everyone in the same week, but what we try and do is maybe we'd ask people to maybe come every second week. You know what I mean? Because... You can't, um, we do want people are supposed to be dependent on it either. We want them, we want to help them. But so, also, I suppose, finally, um, look, pride can be a costly thing, but leave pride out the window. Don't be afraid to ask for help. No, not at all. I mean, it's a, such a friendly atmosphere now. I mean, yeah, even at Christmas there, we had people, we had a couple of the corporates that would have um, given us toys and stuff that we would have given them age as a kid, and they would have... Um, you know, they have, they all kind of chose maybe a child to look after for Christmas. So we were able to do things like that. So, you know what, now, yeah, there's, like, I think the Irish people are the worst in the world for pride. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, now we're only, listen, we're only all a few paychecks away from being in the same situation. Oh, and right. we must never forget that, you know. Sharon Mullins with Feed Cork. Congratulations and well done on all of the great work you're doing and thanks for taking the call. Now, later today, a funeral will take place of a man deemed one of the greatest soccer players of the war in the world and that is the late Pele. And I want to talk to a man who has a, a core connection. Tony, you have a little connection with Pele. Good morning. Good morning, Paul. How are you? How are you doing? Very good, thank you. You were working in a hotel in New York many, many years ago as a concierge. First of all, how did you end up in New York? What brought you there? Why did you end up there? Well, I was thinking of emigrating there time because the job situation in Cork was so bad that I went out there and uh, I ended up in it's an apartment. Actually, it's not a hotel. Right. It's, uh, where Pella was staying at the time, you know. Well, that's where, he, that's where his headquarters is in New York. So... Uh, that was my intentions first day. I stayed there for a year, worked there for a year, and uh, when I found out he was working there, or living there, rather, <laughs> uh, I, I was like a child in a, a toy shop, you know, because mad into football, and, you know, it just took off from there. And you would have seen him coming and out of the apartment block, so on a regular basis? I am. When I, when, he, when I was on, you know, on the desk, you know, you see everyone coming in and going, and all the different people coming to him now. What was he doing? Uh, brilliant, brilliant. Once, you know, I, I, I was a football man because in New York at the time, 
a lot of people didn't know nothing about football, you know. So it was actually his, his driver, uh, Meal was his name. He was his, also his bodyguard. I used to be talking to him while he was waiting for Pellet to come downstairs, you know. They ring and they come down and they take off. And uh, as Emil felt to me that I was mad into football. So we just started chatting and uh, it took off from there, you know. So he was a brilliant guy, very, very uh, modest man for these statues. And at the time, you know, you'd be saying, have, have to, at the time, you'd be half afraid to talk to him, but then after a few times, it was, it was very uh, relaxed, you know. Fantastic and, man altogether. And how long were you keeping up the uh, the relationship with him? You know, how long were you working there? Was it just going on for a couple of years? I mean, here, here, here. I worked there for a year, and uh, you know, he's a very generous man. Not alone with money, but uh, with staff and the way he treated people. Like there used to be a, a little lady. She's come down to the lobby. You know. She had plenty of family, but they, they used to call. You know, but the only time they called was like when they wanted money. But mm-hmm. he come down, he always go over and he has a few words or not that kind of way. You know. So he was he, he was generous with his time. He was giving. Oh, fairly generous with his time. Yeah, well, everyone you know when you got to know him, you know, him, he used to be talking to him about the football, and uh, you know, one instance there, you know, I was talking to him. I said, uh, when you know, I said, I see a bank's made for me. You know, he just said, oh, miracle. Miracle, he said, you know, that, that was his words, you know, things like that. And talking about the, the great player he was and all that, and we were there one another day talking about while he's waiting, the man is getting the car ready. And he, uh, I says, uh, you know, you're the greatest player in the world, you know. Oh, he says, no, no, he says, you have the greatest player in the world. And I said, who's that? He said, Georgie Best. Like, he didn't realise between the north and the south, you yes, know. Yes, yes. Well, he actually, he actually said that. I think he was quoted in some book as well saying that the best was the best, you know, but he that's very very modest, you know. Very modest. Very you know, he's going out and he, if you wanted anything back, you know, they Jesus they, they feed you and everything, you know, they, it was unbelievable, you know, that he whatever they're having out they'll bring back to you, you know. And you have yeah. um, you have of course a, a photograph of yourself with Pele and he also signed it and signed yeah. um photographs of himself for your family as well. That's right, for the whole of them, yeah. I had a lot more photographs there, but at the time, you know, the cameras weren't great. And mm-hmm. if you remember the little camera, you put the, the bulbs in the top. Oh, there was yeah. four bulbs. I heard about no, those, Tony. Go away, you're older than me. I heard, gra- I heard my granddad talking about them. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, like that photograph that was taken, or that was taken in daylight in October, and that was outside the building. But, like, it looks like nighttime because, you know, the the building's been so high that there used to be much like it into the streets, you know. But uh, you couldn't take the no lobby then because the lobby in, in the apartment, uh, walls, ceilings, it was all, all mirror, you know. So you couldn't take nothing in there. You had to go outdoors. What does that photograph mean to you, um, uh, uh, Tony? Great memories, like, you know, great memories, like, to have a photograph like that. The genius of a man, like, you know. And to think he's been laid to rest today? Oh, it's very sad, very sad, very sad, you know. Uh, actually, I went over, I was over there, uh, I think it was about five years ago, I went off to my brother-in-law in Boston, I went down, especially, went down the weekend and I went off to Connacht Towers, and uh, when I went in, the, the, all, the, all the staff was changed, but there was one guy there, Dave, he, he was a yank, and uh, he was telling me that I missed him by about two days. Uh-huh. Like, the kind of man that I liked, if, if I, I called him, and if he was there, and I said, the concierge, Tony is there. 
he would come down, you know. That's the kind of man he was. Very good. What have we lost? What has the world of sport lost? I know he retired a long, oh. long time ago, but uh, sport has lost? Well, the king, man. The king of soccer. King of soccer, out of doubt. Gentleman. Well, like I, I used to be in Durham, you, you could have Jarzino, Revelino, Tati, Gilson, Alberto, Jesus, sent us from the 60-16. They, they all came and went, you know, but sure, I, I, I used to be still said like a little child and I was just be left and over. I tell you a little story, Paul. Right. We were there one day, and this is true. We were there one day, there were, he was after telling the, all the boys that they, I, I didn't go on no because, you know, this is uh, 86 in there from the 66 and 70s team and they were there. And they came down one day and they were taking the Mickey Omi and they didn't know I played a bit of football. And they made up a, a paper ball. This is facts now. If you were on, mm-hmm. on, if you were on record, like, you know, like the phones you have now today, and they were kicking around the lobby and they were, they were dragging me out to not the, the player. And next who came on the scene with the super, my super. Right. So what's going on here? And we're all, we're all drinking. Now, Pella's English wasn't great even that time. And I was, you know, he, and he says, oh, no, no, my fault. He says, uh, uh, Tony come out here, he says, trying to take the ball of us. But he says, not many people done that. <laughs> 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 That's fact, you know. I always think it's exactly like that. But Tony yeah, the Kenny, the one who got the man, the man one past Pele, huh? <laughs> the greatest and humor ever, you know, and a lovely man. Tony, thanks for taking the call. Thank you, Paul. See you later. That's uh, Tony Kenny, the man. No, sorry. That was Tony Kenny, the man who Pele met many, many years ago. Not Tony Kenny who met Pele. Pele met Tony Kenny. That's it. Well done. Listen, before we go, I want to go down to uh, the Everyman Palace on McCurtain Street. Cinders, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm not too bad. And how are things going in the Everyman with Cinderella this year, Catherine Buckley? Buzzing, absolutely buzzing. The whole, yeah, it's playing to packed houses, very appreciative houses. Um, the, the, I suppose the audience totally going with it. Um, they love to hear your voice and PJ Coogan's voice as well. You always get a round of applause which is lovely, so I'm delighted that you're doing something for Cork. <laughs> check is in the post, Catherine, check is in the post. Yeah, Catherine, no problem, this is, no your problem. First, this is your first year back really after COVID, isn't it? Full it, house. It is, full house, full house this year, um, and it just makes such a difference to the cast, you know, um, and we, we kind of introduced as well the 11 o'clock shows, and I, gosh, they're booking them out, and, you know, it's just wonderful, and I suppose the audience participation, I know that even last night now I was in just viewing up just to keep that everything is ticking over and um, one of Michael Sands who's playing uh, Will uh, Dandini as such the character's secretary um, he made a comment and uh, a voice a little voice from the audience answered and he just said thank you that was my next line <laughs> you know that kind of impromptu and it's just everybody loved loved those kind of those kind of things and you know it just kind of proves to me as well Paul we all need now today to be able to laugh chuckle forget all the doom and gloom every time you hear the news it's something you know sad or something worrying and to go in there and a woman said to me uh, who just buried her husband and she said you just made me come alive for two hours you switch off and you forget about the outside world absolutely absolutely and that's what it's all about and we need more of that in 2023 you know really Catherine before we go you're still on and running up until the 15th of January any tickets left Um, there's some tickets yeah get onto the box office get on the website 
And can I just before I go, can I wish Kada Ella, our uh, I suppose future stars, who will be doing a one night show on Tuesday night, playing the principal parts and everything uh, in in the Everyman. Kada Ella on Tuesday night as well. So like we're we're we have our panto until the sixteenth, and we have one night of Kada Ella. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Listen. Thanks for making. Uh, uh, thanks for entertaining the people of Cork over Christmas and don't oh, throughout the years Cinderella that uh, magical show yeah. is uh, continuing up until the 15th of January at and the Everyman thanks to you too Paul for everything you, you were always very helpful, helpful and we really appreciate it thank you very much indeed talk to you soon that was uh, Catherine Mahan Buckley from Cadder Productions and again the Cinderella at the Everyman Palace continuing until the 15th of January that's it we're out of time thank you to Wayne Emer and uh, Fergal and uh, thank you for for listening. I'm Paul Byrne. We'll talk again. God bless.